<laughs> Emily. Yeah. Okay, we're live. Okay, we're live now. Good morning, everybody. We're a little slow getting started. Why is everybody coming so late today? Yeah, explain your Explain Really? Honestly. Kathy. Kathy. I'm just kidding. Shame her. No. No. It's good to see everybody back. Right? Caleb from Maryland. Yes. What part of Maryland? Uh, I was in Frederick. Okay. Wow. You came all the way up from Frederick? No. Well, I live in Philadelphia. His family is still there. Okay. Kathy just got back from California. In Mexico. And Mexico. Yeah. Don't miss. Tell anybody about that. And I'm Where originally. Oh, uh, just like holiday stuff. Okay. <laughs> so um, we're back. I like the Asian Slowly and gradually coming back together, and we have a wonderful person with us today, a visitor today, but hopefully a permanent member as we go forward. Uh, his name is Stan Woods. I'm from 12th and Wallace. He's from 12th and Jefferson. No, I'm 10th and Jefferson. Oh, excuse me. My father was from 12th and uh, Master. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that's where my grandparents are from. Oh, you told me it's 13th and Master, right? Yeah, 13th and Master. Wow. I mean, you, I mean, for those who are not from Philly and North Philly, all of this is so meaningful. See, I said 12th and Jefferson. He said, no, 10th and Jefferson. Mm. And it makes a lot of difference. <laughs> and I'm from 12th and Wallace, you know what I'm saying? And Coltrane is from 12th and where he grew up, 12th and Master, between Master and Jefferson. Mm. Train, I'll take you by the cold, the great John Coltrane. But anyway, I met Stan in the reading group where we're doing the novels of W.E.B. Du Bois that's being led and organized by Divya. And that's where we met. And then we start talking. And so he's here today. This is really an honor to have you here, Stan. And um, you'll meet all of uh, these people who sometimes are considered to be a little crazy. I didn't even say that. Right? <laughs> well, I'm just saying. But Today, um, we're going to do a lot of things. We have to, uh, one, we want to talk about the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Soviet Union and the significance of that. Uh, and then, uh, well, I guess we'll say, I guess Emily will say a couple of things about Kevin McCarthy having one Speaker of the House and that res resolution mm -hmm. and what that struggle was about. And then we're going to go into the chapter of Black Reconstruction called the General Strike, uh, and so on. Is there anything else that we have to do? Or... Oh, the over the events, mm -hmm. like the Paul Robeson event. Oh yeah, we have to do the event. yeah the Paul Robeson. Oh, I'm sorry. So maybe we'll start uh, with our upcoming events and where we are in our planning. And then to the mountains, I guess we have to make. Oh, let me just say it now. Uh, tomorrow, uh, Madre Jesse's son is being married. 
And if we can go out there, that'll be nice. She really wants us to come. And uh, at her new church, by the way. So we'll talk about organizing that. On the 16th of January, the Church of the Overcomer is doing a uh, Martin Luther King Day. Um, and Sherry Honkala will be speaking. Uh, a representative of, of the New Black Panther Party will be speaking, and I will be speaking. Uh, we'll see how that works mm -hmm. out. I mean, it's a mix of various yeah. uh, takes on Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. but it's a very significant event. And so we'll have to go down to that. That's on the 16th, which is a Monday. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that's all I can think about right now. But perhaps we can begin, Anna, if you want to say something about what you all have been discussing over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're doing, uh, Stan, we're doing a conference on Korea. Okay. And um, we're looking at both sides of the divide of the Korean Peninsula. But, uh, but go ahead, I'll, I'll let uh, Anna tell us what they've been doing and so. Yeah, um, so this and is... And this is Anna Ko. Anna, nice to meet you. Yeah, she is, if you don't mind me introducing you, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> she's a recent graduate of the University of Pennsylvania in political science and international relationships. And she has a tremendous capacity for doing political theory. I think that's what anchors her work these days. But go ahead, Anna. Um, so this this event is about... What is the date for it, by the way? Have we said so, it right, so we're thinking the weekend either of, I think, March 18th or the 25th. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're going to start make, trying to make arrangements for that soon. Um, the, the structure we're thinking is going to be like a day and a half. So we're going to have a whole Saturday and then we're going to possibly have on the Friday night before something. Um, we're thinking on the Friday night, something would, that, that something would be arts related, culture related. And because the event is going to be about peace and reunification in Korea, um, Korea and Korean civilization. So we really want to emphasize the ideological components of Korean civilization in Korea on Friday night. And then on Saturday, that's when we would have some panels, we would have some town halls about that. And we want all of Saturday to really show like the arc of a lot of the ideological points that we want to make. So yeah, right now we're actually, we're, we're kind of like thinking we're bouncing on ideas for a vision statement. And this, I think this is the part where we're actually looking for feedback. Um, just, you know, things about like what to, like what are the things to include, what absolutely has to be in it. And then also, who are we writing to? Um, right now we're thinking the, the, the two main groups that we're really writing to are Black Philadelphia and also Korean Americans in Philadelphia. So that's kind of, to have both of those people to write both to write to both of them is kind of like presenting a really interesting uh, 
task. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> and by the way, the vast majority of these Korean Americans are Christians. Mm -hmm. So that's gonna be, yeah, that's definitely its own thing. So, yeah, I guess as for what we're putting, what we want, what we want to emphasize and what we want to make the ideological arc, we want to talk about civilization and anchor, I think that into the struggle for peace uh, in Korea. So, so, we, so we start out saying, you know, what, first of all, like, what is this idea of civilization? Why is it important? I think this is where Du Bois is really going to come in. Um, and then also what about imperialism? disrupted civilization. And I think for a lot of folks in the free school, it sounds a little bit like a no-brainer, but I think for the one part, we want to put it because we're thinking about our audiences, especially Korean Americans. And I think also it would be good um, for a lot of folks in the free school to present and kind of shine about this, about I guess I would say the, the the logic that we've laid down, a lot of the shared terminology that I think we've worked together on for several years now, and to and to share that framework. Um, and then I think later on we want to focus a lot more specifically on North Korea, because um, I think the South is. I mean, there is a lot of information in the United States already about the South, and the fact is that the South itself. While there have been many progressive movement, movements in the South, the North has really been the main contributor and like the lighting torch for peace and for progress, human progress in Korea and also for the world. And that's something we really want to expand upon in the second part. And then I think in the end, we want to have a town hall where people can actually actively discuss these things. So. One thing that we're interested in and that we're not entirely sure how to tie in, but I, we think that you guys would be, or I should say all of us would be particularly interested in, is this idea of communist social relations. Um, we were just reading some speeches from Kim Il-sung about this. Um, and, and really, like, what does it mean to create and develop communists, not just in economic system, but social relations? to unify the entire people under the same purpose, the same goals, the same ideas. Um, probably one of the most poorly understood ideas in the West. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it's something we're working through right now. And we're also really interested to hear what you guys think. Can I just say one thing? I, I got a text from Nuri. Everybody knows Nuri's in South Korea now. And she went, I don't know whether you got it, to the North Korean yeah. Information or Resource Center in Seoul. Yeah, we're talking about that the other oh, day. Oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. You might... Oh, no. I mean... and, she, um, and she said she was going through um, books, uh, children's books that the North Koreans have produced. And she said it was very fascinating for her to see how they're thinking about the development of this new human being. So I, I, I don't know. Whether... Well, the reason, yeah, we're interested in this idea of the social relations and especially the new human being is because we're writing to the fourth American revolution, right? This idea of the new human being and the fact that North Korea has struggled for it and created it. What does that mean for the rest of the world? Because even though 
this event is about Korea in many ways. I think ultimately it's about America. So explain, tease that out a little bit if you don't mind. Well, we're we're I hate to use this word, but I think we're something we've had to work through in the event is also our I hate to use this sort of word, but positionality as diaspora Koreans. What does that mean? We're not Koreans. I mean, okay, Mary might kind of be, but she, you know, we're all we're all ultimately Americans, is what I'm saying. So, and, and the fact is that even though we have Korean heritage, for many of us, the only place we've ever called home is this country, and that means that this country is our responsibility and that we're a part of it, and we're a huge part in the making and the remaking of it. And what does that mean to synthesize? you know, what we've learned and what we all can learn from Korea, especially North Korea, for the purposes of bringing America closer to humanity and for the fourth American revolution. What, like, what do the people of this country need? And how can we distill the best from like the most progressive and the most developed forces that already exist in the world? And I guess not just bring them here, but how can they be even more developed, further developed for the context here? Yeah. Any comments or questions for Anna? Uh, my first question is what are the four? Uh, you said this is the fourth revolution. What are the four mm. revolutions? <laughs> yes. Uh, hey, hey, Stan, could we get to that in a minute? Okay. This is a, this, uh, when we, uh, I guess, uh, Emily will say, so we should say something about our meeting yesterday. And we'll come, we'll come to that in okay. one minute, man. Yes. <laughs> okay. Any, any questions? We have you started writing a statement? Okay. We haven't started. We, <laughs> so we actually <laughs> met like a couple days ago just to talk about it mm -hmm. and, to I think we're within the next week we're going to start laying down the skeleton for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's why we're looking for some feedback and ideas because we I mean we know that these things go through many revisions and through many drafts. Yeah. Um I can just say one thing is that um I don't I think Jeremiah shared on Facebook an S an article where the current president of South Korea has said that uh, the South Korean and US militaries are going to begin nuclear yeah. exercises. Yeah. Yeah. And this is profoundly dangerous. Well, and the, mm -hmm. I think the, the really dangerous thing is that South Korea under the current president, uh, Yoon, he, I think he's more hawkish than even the US is right now. He's yeah, he's saying like, oh, yeah, Biden said we're going to do these drills. And Biden was like, oh, really, did we? <laughs> and, and he said, yeah. And I think now, I think they, they just, some, yeah, they, uh, I think Nuri just sent a link saying that Yoon warns ending the entire military pact if North violates airspace. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, well, he's, he's really gearing up for war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a... Uh, I think also just like the timeliness of the event is something that we want to emphasize. Mm -hmm. And you know, because we, 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 the times that uh, we were all together, and like uh, Anna said, 
you know, we're trying to think, how do we message this to the Korean American community? Mm. You know, as she said, most are Christians, uh, mainly I think Presbyterians. And uh, most are steeped in deep anti-North Korea uh, sentiments. And um, and it's a nation that's always on the precipice of war and nuclear war. Mm-hmm. And South Korea is an occupied nation on the Korean Peninsula. And I, I, I don't want to say too much, but the South Korean population, to the best of our um, knowledge, agrees with occupation under the guise of the U.S. military and nuclear forces are protecting, quote, us from our sisters and brothers in the North. And this claim that the North Korean government is an illegitimate regime. I mean, there's so much to cut through. And yeah. and like, like she said, these two communities, the African-American and Korean community, that doesn't mean exclusively, but as ter- in terms of audiences and messaging, and it's a very difficult thing because we, I don't know that any of us really know the full politics, maybe you do, Anna, full politics of of the Korean diaspora in, let's say, Philadelphia. I mean, do we? I don't know. I'm just, I don't know how to message to a diaspora community that, you you, you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I mean, that's something that we've been talking about, the three of us, Um, because Jeremiah also grew up in the church. Yes. Yeah. And he was, it was interesting. He was, well, I guess he can, he can speak for himself in the comments if he wants, but he was just telling us about how he, when he was visiting family over the holidays, he was talking to one of his cousins who was like very deeply religious. Um, Yeah. And it's interesting because he was saying that, I mean, I'm just paraphrasing something he got from his cousin was that the reason he was so deeply religious is because he viewed the world as an inherently broken and sinful place mm-hmm. and that like religion can serve as a type of shelter or in some cases a retreat from it whereas yeah and just kind of yeah i think jeremiah wanted to like tell him also about his own commitment to the free school and yes acknowledging the kind of place that the world is but that it's not something to be retreated from mm-hmm. um yeah, and then one second. Um, but I think this also, I think what you said about the North ties into a lot of things that we've also been reading. I just wanted to share a little bit about that. Yeah, We've been reading mostly, um, but definitely not exclusively, speeches and works from Kim Il-sung. But mm. we, there are actually a lot, well, I don't, I don't know about a lot, but there are a few Western scholars and historians who are actually fairly rigorous uh, scholarly. I mean, in terms of their, their scholarship. Um, there's this one, his name is Bruce Cummings. I've, I've been mm-hmm. coming through his work right now. Mm-hmm. And there's another one, A.B. Abrams. He mm-hmm. wrote this book called Immovable Object. Mm-hmm. So I think Nuri went through that entire book. I'm also working on it right now. 
Yeah, so I think in terms of those sources, ideologically, I don't know what to say about them, but I know factually we can rely on them. But I think it's fine that we can't actually rely on them entirely ideologically because I think that's something that we can glean for ourselves. As long as we have facts that we know we can rely on, the North already has a framework. We have a framework that actually isn't all too different from theirs. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think with that, we can, we can, you know, somewhat smoothly create a synthesis. Oh yeah, my question was just tying into kind of what you were already speaking of, like with the emphasis on a lot of the Korean and Black Philadelphia population being Christian, like if that was going to be talked about a little bit through the event, it's like a lot of Koreans tied to Christian and like how did that come to be? Mm. Oh, I guess so so to answer both parts of your question, Mm -hmm. um, well I guess the first one is that so many Koreans are Christian because of missionary activity. Mm-hmm. You had the Jesuits in like the 1700s, so that's why a lot of them are Catholic. Right. But then you had the American missionaries in the 1800s and the 1900s who were mostly Presbyterian. But you have, well, like there's like a lot of Baptists, there's a lot of uh, Methodists, there's a lot of even like Pentecostals. Mm-hmm. But, the, but a lot of them are, have stayed in Korea. Right. Christians are like vastly overrepresented among Korean Americans. Yeah. yeah. Oh, um, so that's what like I've seen. Even like I went to Catholic school and I'd always see like Christian churches that were like Asian, like Vietnamese, Korean, like on the way to school. And I'm like, there's a lot of Christian yeah. Asian people. Yeah, I mean, and like there are there are obviously like very specific reasons as to why the Christians are overrepresented among mm-hmm. like the diaspora, especially the American populations. Right. Um, but the other thing is, I think we actually wanted to include something specific in the vision statement about Christianity. I think specifically because we think that King can yeah. actually be, yeah. Yeah. King can be that link, King can yeah. be that bridge. That's true. Yeah. Because I think when, when Jeremiah was talking about his cousin, you know, he said, that's a very specific type of Christianity. It's not Christianity per se. It's a very specific, you know, white Western Christianity yeah. that's mm-hmm. being practiced. It doesn't mean that it's irredeemable, but it means that it needs to be reconsidered and changed because King presents an entirely different vision of Christianity, exactly. one that doesn't simply retreat. I feel like his idea too is moral. Like it's an actual, the spiritualism of Christianity and using it to fuel a moral perspective that helped make a revolution. Whereas a lot of people who choose not to be revolutionary are using it in a political sense. Like it's more of like an agenda to create display rules for other people in society. Like this is how you have to behave under this religion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I just think that, I guess speaking to like the moral thing with King, I think the biggest thing we wanna emphasize is the struggle for peace. Because, yeah. like, the point mm-hmm. isn't to, like, con- try to convince, yeah. like, Korean Americans, like, oh, you have to 100% get behind the North Korean government. Mm-hmm. It's rather, mm-hmm. like, we want to show them that, like, you come from a great civilization, mm-hmm. specifically one that in the past actually has stood for peace. Mm-hmm. And that there are, there's a living tradition in here in this country that is also the embodiment of peace. Mm-hmm. Right. And that the time is now to fight for peace. And I think you absolutely can and should justify that on theological grounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Including the, the two Christianities or two religions 
liberation theology and the theology of the afterlife, which retreats from this world. And, you know, and I don't want to sound too harsh or whatever, but um, one can never forget that South Korea is occupied, that the Korean Peninsula was viciously and brutally bombed. And they said it, the American military said it, we want to bomb them back to the Stone Age, which if you, if you take that literally, you're talking about thousands of years of this ancient, and this is one of the things that we cannot emphasize enough. In spite of the political division and the occupation, the Korean civilization is a very ancient one. The Korean language is a very ancient one. And it is upon the foundation of a single civilization that these problems of occupation and war can be resolved by the Korean people. Right. This is, and you, I, and I think what I got from Nuri as she, you know, is reading these pedagogies and stuff right. is, you know, this great capacity, but it's, it's disproportionately manifested in the North. Right. Hmm. This great capacity of Korean civilization to remake itself and to become new and these new, and I, I, I think I'm talking too much, but this point of is humanity entering a stage mm -hmm. where humanity is sustainable only based upon new social relations, which you have mm -hmm. called communist social relations, yeah. and not just economic relations. I, I think this is, it, to me, it's a very exciting uh, project uh, and we, and I, I guess what we concluded kind of in our meetings is that we, because we would, you know, how do we present this and this might not go well with the Korean Christians. And, and I think at some point I got, and Nuri, in fact, is the one who said, no, we have to literally that we have to be true to what we know is the truth. Yeah. And we also said, that there are great, greater possibilities among young Koreans. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, go, go ahead. I just want to express my excitement for the event too. Um, and I think I've been trying to like poke and prod Nuri and Jeremiah to share more about the event. Uh, and I think in saying that, I also want to understand why that is. Um, and it start, I, do, I do think this, idea of how it's an event about Korea, but it's also really an event about America and how that relates to all of us here. Because I think it is through King that that becomes relevant in terms of this idea of world peace. Yeah. Because in the US, we're increasingly, you know, thinking about, or like in war, whether it's like through Ukraine or even the talks about Taiwan. And um, this idea that Asia actually is where the movement for peace is really coming from in this world. But the West uses, um, and I guess historically we've also seen these patterns of using um, Asian countries against, uh, against one another. 
And I think that goes back to what was said last week, which is that North Korea is the guardian of peace in Asia. And there, I guess people have also been saying how there is this idea that North Korea has to follow, like North Korea is the one that is stuck in the past and has to integrate with know, the rest of the world. But in a sense, actually it's South Korea that's being used Absolutely. for war that needs to join the rest of Asia. And I'm also really excited because it continues a lot of the threads that we've been discussing, whether it's like from the Vietnam and Korea event, the China event as well. And I say the China event because there are connections in history that I was really excited or um, like moved by, which is like the relationship between Koreans and Chinese um, in the 1950s. And that's not something that ever is emphasized or talked about or even made possible because I know even in the US, there are certain antagonisms, or I don't know if it's antagonisms, but like Chinese people and Koreans are oftentimes like because of this ancestry or because of like the narrative mm -hmm. of China and Korea, um, I think there's like a suspicion of one another. I don't know if that's entirely true, or at least is my sense. I think there's like I think there's like a kind of like nationalism, especially like abroad, that kind of kicks up on both sides. Uh -oh. <laughs> 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 Let's not let it break out in here. <laughs> you know, my closest friends are Koreans. Also like, like in New York City, you see Koreans and Chinese working class people live a amongst each other, um, and they're still like it's not. They there aren't the spaces where they're fully um, in conversation with one another, but there's like a uh, like I think there's a potential in which they can come together if there's this history that shows that actually no there are certain historical threads that bind these communities together, um, and uh, I think that also speaks to what you're saying where it's like we're Americans but at the same time there's an ancestry that we come from. Um, but just to say, I was excited about the events. Yeah, I really appreciate the reports you guys give, um, because like what I'm thinking about is like, I'm trying to, well, I'll report on it later, but like, like, for example, even this, the way you reported it and I really like, it made me, it helped me a lot in other things that I'm thinking about because the conversation happening here, I feel like what you said, the way you framed it, Anna, as the Korea event is meant to show, like it doesn't matter how much, let's say Korean Christians in the US or Korean Americans may have been trained to have certain assumptions about North Korea. Like, I really like the framing of what we're trying to do is to show Korean Americans that there's a great history because I feel like I really relate that to the point that Doc made about, it shows that the Korean people have a capacity to resolve problems on their own. And there's something really important about that because at the end of the day, it's not so different even from within America to show that the American people have exactly the capacity in this moment to resolve these significant, like the, the problems that are growing because of the great domestic and global crisis that is affecting the peninsula and the Korean peninsula affecting America. It's showing that the people on a world scale have the capacity to solve their own problems. And that's why I really, I like the way you guys are starting to frame 
like the question of war and peace, like, you know, the question of today is war and peace. And you like really emphasizing the fact, basically showing that the Koreans have a capacity to resolve these problems, like, you know, and yeah, I also just wanted to say that I'm also just like Alice said, I'm excited because I think you guys have a really difficult task. Like, I think it is, it's very advanced. I think what you're doing is something very difficult ideologically. Like, it's not just purely historical. In some ways, what you're doing is also like, on, like on behalf of all of free school and in conjunction with like what, I, what everyone else in free school is doing. It's like, we're almost theoretically, we're doing something theoretical, I think. There's like, there's something ideological, political and theoretical that's being advanced, like certain theories of how does a, like how are these societies or peoples like resolving certain questions, a question of capacity. I, I know I'm not describing it the best, but there's something happening here. And at the end of the day, what we're showing is that humanity is marching forward and we're helping, we're helping humanity from like a Du Boisian view or sociolog sociological view or this new theoretical synthesis. We're like armed with that. We're now able to like for all people explain that Koreans are not as divided. Like Koreans have a history and a like a capacity right now to do something, like to solve their own problems. Um, and I feel like that's just really significant. And I think that only clicked for me right now because for a few months I was like, huh, this Korean thing seems cool, but like, I don't, how are they gonna do it? Like, how are we gonna, like, how are we gonna think through it? And I think it's coming together and I'm, I'm really excited. I think it also, like, I just think what free school is doing in 2023 is really exciting. Like it, it all actually has to do with each other. Um, and just this thing of like, it's this emerging generation of people in the world. There's changes. Like, I feel like what we're doing is we're also describing the qualitative changes and what's possible. Like we're making the actual ideological theoretical argument of like what's possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Like, no, just a quick question, but is there differences between how Young and old Korean see North North Korea. Could say that again. Is there a difference between how young and old but like, Korean Americans see North Korea? I'd say yes. <laughs> like a qualified yes. Yeah. Um I think see like my grand or our grandparents' generation, they're the ones who actually lived through the war. And I think something that like all of us have been talking about is that trauma is actually a really big like bottleneck in the Korean and also Korean American communities when it comes to talking about anything. Um, it's really, it is difficult to work with because a lot of these people are alive and hold very prominent positions as leaders in the Korean American community. Um, and I think because of that, a lot of conversations that should be happening don't happen. But yeah, and, and the three of us, you know, especially, you know, like Jeremiah and I, like both of us having grown up in the church, mm -hmm. um, we kind of went back and forth talking about how we're gonna do this. We ultimately decided that, I mean, we can't let that stop us, you know, but um, I think there is, well, it's not just the fact that they lived through the war, but then also the first couple decades of South Korea's existence. Um, it was a really, really brutal and repressive military dictatorship. Um, I mean, I, if, I think like a lot of the VLK reading has seen like under like the Pak Chumye years, 
you had extreme censorship, you know, you had spies and moles that were like infiltrated throughout the population. Like I was just telling them even growing up in the church, like, like communism was like the dirtiest word that you could ever say. Like, I think I, I remember I had this one pastor, he was like a youth pastor. He was only like 10 years older than me. So like as a teenager, I thought he was so cool. And he was like, yeah, you know, he was like down with Black Lives Matter. And I was like, oh, he's a cool guy. And so, so then I just randomly, I think I was like maybe 16 or 17. I popped the question because I was curious. I was actually studying at the time, like the relations between Korean and Black Americans in, in Philadelphia. And I asked him about communism. I said, I was just like, oh, like, why why is communism this thing you know and why like why can't we talk about it and then he right. shut me down fast mm-hmm. i was shocked when he yes. did that but wow. he was like no, he yes. was yeah yeah he was like no 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 like and that's like people's trauma people you know people suffered so much it doesn't matter if, if it's good or bad people wow. have trauma attached to it you can't talk about it yeah. and that was the first and last time that you know those things it, there's just like a kind of like you can feel it in the air sometimes like it's just kind mm-hmm. of hanging there there's just a, there's like this elephant in the room that you know everybody knows about but they just don't talk about mm-hmm. and i think also again it's compounded by the Pak Chung-hee years where like if like talking about something could lead you in like a death camp right um like people have that memory of the 1970s so whereas i think a lot of the young koreans I think the crisis of legitimacy that has gripped so many of America, so much of America, you can see it in the young Korean Americans. I think a lot of them are less likely to believe what they're told. Mm. It's not that they're mm, fully, it's not that they're fully on board, for example, with everything that we might say, but you, you you can see a lot more opportunities with them just because they feel very concretely um, how this country has failed them and their neighbors mm-hmm. and the rest of the world. So I guess that's what I would say. Mm-hmm. That's intense. Yeah. Um, maybe we can move on to the uh, Du Bois event. Uh, who was it really? Hold on you have it in front of you, mm-hmm. right? On your computer? You want to pull it up on the dock. Uh, we really haven't, uh, except um, the date and the place uh, and the title of the uh, Du Bois, uh, are we calling a symposium uh, at the uh, Church of the Crucifixion, a new place, but a temporary place right now. Uh, and the title of it, I think I got this right, sir, The uh, Black Proletariat and the Fourth American Revolution, or something. <laughs> we'll explain this in a minute. Uh, I think there's some, I think that's what we kind of agreed upon. Is there the new people in there? Yeah, I think so. Is it? I, um, uh, yeah, maybe. Well, I mean, we have been juggling like uh, these mm-hmm. ideas about the new, uh, I don't know if it was American or the new, or a new people. Um, but yeah, something like, the, I think I, you might be right. Yeah. The, uh, the Fourth American Revolution and the Black Proletariat are in. Yeah. Are gonna the be. Fourth American Revolution is in there too. And a new people, kind mm-hmm. of, something yeah. like that. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where it is the. Um, 
the symposium, I guess we're calling it that, will be devoted to Black Reconstruction and how we actually do it. Yeah, because it's, it's a talking, uh, or it's, it's in similar vein to the North Korean event about um, developing this, um, or what Emily already explained, the kind of new theoretical mm. and the quality, like the changes in ideas um, that this time, or it more adequately suits this moment, mm -hmm. I would say, um, because we're, while reading Black Reconstruction in preschool, I think we kind of gone over some things about like, okay, well, what is a Black proletariat and why is, like, how can we say that we are on the cusp um, of mm -hmm. a fourth American revolution? What was the civil rights movement? And well, there's a lot of questions to, um, or like, there's a lot of things that we're saying in free school um, about this stage of history that, you know, we can develop more so theoretically. Um, those questions about communism, um, the synthesis between Du Bois and Lenin, why is that important? Um, that I think the, because what we're doing on Du Bois's birthday is dedicating it to Black Reconstruction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also significant because Black Reconstruction has a lot of um, people don't want to talk about it, you want to push it away, and then we get into the anti-revolutionary um, theorists like Gerald Horn that we've also been um, kind of discussing and talking about. Because why is it that we can um, totally dismiss Black Reconstruction? What is it that we are trying to, or, or what is it that the ruling class wants to hide from um, the young people? And so essentially it's another event dedicated to the youth, um, I would say. And, uh, but that's what I, you know, in terms of the yeah. event. Yeah, and um, I've asked Stan if he would agree to be a presenter mm. and he has. Um, and Emily and I were talking about this last night, uh, possibly inviting, or not possibly, but yeah. inviting of people from Midwestern marks yeah. to come and to this present, yes. you know, or to be a part of our, how Since we they want to be a part of it. Yeah. No, <laughs> uh, because uh, it is because we, we, we share certain common values uh, and they too are interested in Du Bois and Black Reconstruction, uh -huh. and I think sincerely so. So our ideas on this uh, uh, could be, uh, you know, could be developed. But uh, uh, but and, and, yeah, what what did we say about this, Emily? Is there anything else that you want? about the about um, Midwest Marks? Um, well, we had ideas about like I think all of us had ideas about. Um, having roundtables similar to during the 10th anniversary when we were at the Church of the Crucifixion, the roundtables that we hosted, especially the one that Anna, Michelle, you and um, and uh, Danny Chad and, and Chad uh, and, Erba, uh, Will, Walmart, Walmart yes. were on, yeah. like a roundtable to have a discussion. And we talked about the idea of maybe having a roundtable, like talking about the question of a new democracy and how do you and then also like, cause we were also discussing in terms of expanding the article 
about reporting on the 10th anniversary that was published. Could we come back to, I want to get, could we hold off on that, come back to that article? Yeah. But I, just, I, I was just trying to figure out, um, oh, but go ahead, I, I don't want to cut you. I'm sorry, uh, Emily. Well, what, just. Because I want to, after we go through this, I want to, I want you to talk about updating your essay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, but for the roundtable, we had ideas of, you know, because by talking, by asking about a new democracy, you're also basically, in some ways, we're laying out a certain criteria of revolution in America, like an objective criteria of revolution in America, yeah, which yeah, also leads, yeah. it's also a critique of like claims by some parts of the left today as well. And it also talks about people's understanding of fascism. So I think in some ways there's an interesting, there could be an interesting roundtable about um, a new democracy that has like sub questions within it. And I think that's, I think that is where like various groups like Platypus, Midwestern Marx, the Free School and others like could have an interesting discussion because all in some ways it gets the question of like the future of America, but then also the question of revolution versus counter-revolution, um, which is the main, I think it's, that's the main thing being conflated and mixed up um, by people today, um, which has implications for the future of the American people. Yeah, and, and I know Nuri is already one fourth through Eric Foner's book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I haven't even opened it. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. Return it. Just return it to Amazon. She's reading it for yeah. both of you. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, I don't, I, I've learned not to not to try to keep up with Koreans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think, well, I, we won't get into that. The China event taught me that. But um, um, but we have to do Foner. We have to do mm -hmm. uh, Gerald Horn. We have to do the 1619 right, right. Project mm -hmm. uh, and reestablish the centrality of this work mm -hmm. in the categories of knowledge that it establishes. And this is um, not just a so-called factual, quote, history of reconstruction, but what are the categories uh, yeah. developed by Du Bois to understand American history? And as Emily said, both revolutionary and counter-revolutionary. Yeah. This is, it's, so, you know, we'll be talking, I know um, Sarah and I are trying to work out some things on this, but we'll, you know, we'll, uh, we'll have it more securely developed by next week, I hope. We'll, but yeah, so, uh, I mean, we, it's not like it's a big organizational problem for us. It's like with the Korea event and so on. How do we, yeah. Uh, ideologically, philosophically, and so on, uh, situate this. I'm using that language to situate this text and what it, what it, what are its implications for this moment in history. Mm -hmm. I also would say it? that we have been focusing on the concert, the Paul Robeson and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad mm -hmm. event. Yeah, we've been. We're going to get to that, and we haven't. Uh, devoted a lot of time to the Du Bois event, but we'll we'll yeah, do that. It'll yeah, it'll be in February. His birthday falls in the middle of the week, so it'll be on a Saturday, of mm -hmm. course. And um, 
uh, the Church of the Crucifixion. Uh, and um, well, it's a, it'll be a one-day event. So there's certain things we'll have to get together, you know, including food and yada, yada, yada. Okay. Um, let's go to the um, Paul Robeson, Uncle Elijah Muhammad event. Can you talk about that, Sarah? Just where we are, what we did last week, <laughs> last Sunday in our planning meeting. For Emily. Well, you can, we, we actually revised the title. So originally we called it a concert, but we're turning it into an interstitial. We changed the date. Yes. Though, yeah, okay. We changed the date. So rather than being on Easter, it will be the Saturday before Easter because we want more time. We have so many performers and we want it to be like to have the time and space to really celebrate the intercivilizational performances and be able to talk about the significance of the performers chosen and make an ideological and political point with like the performances, the way we're putting them together, that we're calling it an intercivilizational festival now. Right. So it's called Intercivilizational Festival, celebrating the magnificent lives of Paul Robeson and the most honorable Elijah Muhammad. Michelle can also say some. Say that again. Michelle can also say no, because she had also suggested the vendors and that mm -hmm. kind of idea. Yeah, let's but, get let's get the political. Saying, uh, yeah. First of all, I think this is very important that um, as we talked about, and the reason we went from intercivilizational concert mm -hmm. to a festival, intercivilizational festival, is that. We're looking at a big uh, swath of time yes. from 12 to 6 or 7 in the evening mm -hmm. um, that um, it will be uh, essentially music from every civilization uh, mm -hmm. that we can draw from. And it will be, and one of the, th oh yes, this is what we emphasize, the importance of us having the right uh, masters, mistresses of ceremony. It's not just, oh, now we're gonna bring this person up. We must explain when the Bangladeshis perform, what is their music saying? What are the words? And, and what is the Bengali language? Mm -hmm. When Bobby Zankel performs that avant-garde music, what kind of jazz is this? Mm -hmm. What is he saying? Who are his influences? And you know that we have to be more explicit in showing what this unity of civilizations means. Right. And um, there was something to say. Some some other things in terms of the presentation of it. Oh yes, and the build up to it. What we want to do is door to door distribution. Mm -hmm of flyers and leaflets, you, you know what I'm saying? Especially in this neighborhood, but in many parts of the city. And again, these two figures have huge drawing power in Philadelphia and in black Philadelphia. There are people for whom the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was the last thing between them and uh, 
long-term drug addiction, alcoholism, and lives that were completely in decline. They might not be members of the Nation of Islam. They might be uh, Sunni Muslims, or they might be Christians. But the name, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, carries a tremendous authority. Mm-hmm. Really, it does. Mm-hmm. And of course, the name Paul Robeson. So our joining these two yes. figures, you know, is both a political statement and an acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we're talking about the 125th birthdays. Mm-hmm. Elijah Muhammad's 125th birthday was last October. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was recognized and it was an event, but it was so uh, poorly done, I have to say it that way, as to be an embarrassment and a, a trivialization almost of this great man. I mean, I can't put it in any other way. And so by us doing it this way and linking these two figures, we elevate both and as freedom fighters. Mm -hmm. So I I guess that's what I would like to say. Uh, And, and, you know, there are going to be many of the same performers Mm -hmm. as before, but with more time and uh, encouraging them to come with their Mm A-teams, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, like the Korean drummers. We like the children to bring the old heads you know, the experienced musicians. The same with the Bangladeshis. It's gonna be very, very important. The other thing is that we should prepare ourselves to reach out to the communities from which these artists come. You know, we just can't have Rumia uh, and and, and the great Indian dancers without reaching out to the Indian, Indo-American Indian community to come and support your Indian cultural performers. Now, what we're working on, and it's been a missing link, has been Chinese cultural performance. And I think uh, Michelle is uh, gonna work on that. Yeah. Yeah. But let me turn it up. Michelle, would you like to say something? And so we have to do everything we usually do, a GoFundMe. Um, Oh, yes. And this is um, Michelle's thing, that rather than, you know, us providing food, which is great food, we do it through vending. We have vendors who will provide food and people will pay for the food. Mm. You see what I'm saying? so that's what we're working on. But this idea of a festival, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. let me ask you, Emily, did, did we drop the word, um, what is it, undestructible? Uh, or how do we use that word? Remember the Uncon- original? Unconquerable. Unconquerable, un, no, unconquered yeah. love. Yeah. Y'all use both of those. Yeah. Remember we used uh, okay. so mm-hmm. we could do unconquered love and intercivilization. No, 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 no. Yeah. Unconquered love, the 
magnificent lives of Paul Robeson and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, a fest, wow. an inter-civilizational festival. Yeah, so does that? I like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And rather than concert, we said festival. Yeah. And I think that fits us better. Mm -hmm. wow. Okay. Any any comments or questions? I like the unconquered. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that was something that um, well, that was first put forward by Serafina, mm -hmm. and it was first how do we unconquerable? Yeah. And then we and, yeah. back and forth, and we said unconquered, and you know, uh, and it almost references a living legacy mm -hmm. still alive, unconquered, undefeated. Dead in death, undefeated. Yeah. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? I think that could be in the mission statement. Yeah, that's and I, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I've been thinking about the mission statement for this event as well. But um, we'll we'll be coming back. There's been a lot of work that we'll have to do in terms of organizing and leafleting and door to door. Uh, subway stops, bus stops, and all that type of thing. Because the more people who know about this, the better. And if people know about it, I am convinced they will come. Mm. Okay. Yeah, and just to mention on the leaflet parts, because I think um, I was looking at the 10th anniversary leaflets. Mm -hmm. They were beautiful. And a part, like, you know, how we decorate the church with like all like, the photos. Yes, Kathy, and, we need your help. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. With all of because we wanted all of those big posters of the African leaders. Mm -hmm. We want, you know, of course, Mao, Kim Il Sung, you know, Du Bois, Ropes, of course, Robeson mm -hmm. and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. So if we could decorate mm -hmm. the sanctuary with all of this art, uh, it would be very so if you could think about it, mm -hmm. begin thinking about it, Kathy, how we do that, and cetera. And also how much of all this comes out of the 10th anniversary, mm -hmm. at least it, we're moving forward from or with it or from it, I don't know, in mind, um, because the collage um, is, you know, that we did for the flyer, you remember it? Oh, yes. No, just in fact of like the or in the idea of like the new people coming into being like this the civilizations. We have to. That's and, right. You know. That's right. That's right. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we'll be thinking this through. Hopefully we'll be able to meet this week tomorrow, even though we have a lot of things going on tomorrow. Yeah, but you can yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, too. Yeah, I heard that. Okay, you heard about it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, just one other thing. Um, Emily and I met to think out and talk out, uh, not so much revising, but expanding and deepening her great essay that was in Vishnabandhu. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, journal and how we can, uh, uh, because we have to make this available to a wide swath of journals and people mm. in the United States. And maybe you could say something about 
our discussion? Mm. Um, we mainly talked about the pieces that either need to be emphasized more or need to be included. And we, I feel like it's a conversation that has to continue still because mm -hmm. it's so, because you put it, Doc, as like in some ways what the article's doing and it comes out of the conversations of free school, the 10th anniversary, so much of what we do every week is that we're what we're trying to do in this article, revised version of the article, is lay out essentially free school's theory. And that's a difficult task, but it's an important task. And I think we as free school are gonna have to do it more and more. Mm -hmm. And specifically, we talked about how what's missing in the report that was published that we need to figure out is, is the thing I was mentioning about what is a new democracy in America? And then, and then within that is that the only way you can understand what a new democracy is in America, it requires a new theoretical synthesis of Lenin and Du Bois. And then that is with that is a section that needs to be filled out more. Like why? What kind of? Because we're basically answering people's responses, which is why Lenin and why Du Bois together. Like why? And so you have to kind of, you need to like fill that. We need to fill that out and explain. Um, this is what Derek was saying last at last week's free school that Lenin and Du Bois within Lenin and Du Bois the synthesis are unusual dynamics, mm -hmm. um, and we were talking we about underline that, that yeah. unusual dynamics. But I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, and this is what you said, Doctor. Like because to say that it's unusual dynamics is to say that it's both unusual but it's dynamic. Like that is that is the dialectic. There's, that's the dialectic that helps explain and is required to explain America, the revolutionary process, but also what's possible. And that's that's also what the left is missing. Um, and yeah, which was, it was exciting to talk through and because we also talked about, um, we talked about how black reconstruction in particular is important because like to explain what a new democracy in America is, like this is the thing that's difficult for me at least, because in some ways we have to theorize the way that Henry Winston theorized or the way even Du Bois theorized. But what, what um, we talked about was that Du Bois in Black Reconstruction said that a new democracy is abolition democracy. And then Doc replied and said, in some ways, what the fourth American revolution which comes after yeah, so there are four American revolutions in America: 1775, this um, Civil War and Reconstruction, and then the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Freedom Movement, and then the fourth, which is what we're at the cusp of right now. And to even say that there are four revolutions in America, with the fourth revolution, American Revolution, being possible now, is to say that America has a revolutionary tradition and a revolutionary history that any sense of democracy we have today has been fought for and won, like has required revolution. And that goes against claims today that America does not have a revolutionary history. Both within America, there are claims, and then outside of America, there, may, there are large numbers of people who may not know that America is founded on a revolutionary tradition mm -hmm. that has changed, that has become something. And Du Bois is necessary to help explain that. Um, but the fourth American revolution, in some ways, is fulfilling, trying to achieve um, what Du Bois called abolition democracy. And Doc said, he was like, 
what the fourth American Revolution, a new democracy, a new democracy that we're fighting to achieve, that the American people can achieve, is abolishes oppression and exploitation, racial oppression, exploitation that was never completely abolished with the second American Revolution, the Civil War and Reconstruction, which is the whole point of Black Reconstruction. Du Bois explains, like Du Bois is explaining the revol the rev second American Revolution, but then the counter revolution of property. Like what yeah. was not able to actually completely be abolished. And so it, in some ways we're doing something different. Like it's not complete yet, but we're, what we're trying to do is um, fill out this very important point about what is a new democracy in America? What would the stages look like um, to achieve a new democracy? Like this is the work we're trying to figure out. Um, and it heavily relies on not just Du Bois, but the synthesis of Lenin and Du Bois. Um, yeah, which is why I think it's also fitting that we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Soviet Union today, because it's all to me, to me, it's all coming together, just kind of, or I can feel it. Um, but maybe you can talk more about our conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the two sections, oh, oh, and then I'm going to turn it to you to ask any questions then. The two parts that we feel had to be strengthened in the essay um, are uh, democracy. Why a democratic revolution? Are we centralizing a democratic revolution and not, quote, a socialist revolution? Mm, right. You know what I'm saying? Is there a difference? Are they right. uh, different? Is talk of a democratic revolution just talk of bourgeois democracy? Or are we talking of a new democracy, a different democracy? Uh, du Bois calls it abolition democracy. Another way that he talks about it is a revolutionary democracy, mm -hmm. and he does, mm -hmm. you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we want to strengthen that part uh, and this concept of hence a fourth American revolution. Now, for us, Stan, the third, which was the civil rights, with well, the Black Freedom Movement, known as the Civil Rights Movement, uh, in many respects, took on political historical tasks that the other two didn't. Right. It was a reckoning with the past with an optimism about a new people, a new nation, mm -hmm. really. And that's Martin Luther King. Uh, and so we're trying mm -hmm. to develop that in the essay and uh, the synthesis of Lenin and Du Bois. And, and the reason this is so important is because, I guess I'll put it this way, you know, many young people who were in the Bernie Sanders movement uh, have felt that they were betrayed, they're disappointed. Uh, we thought Bernie was this or Bernie was that and Bernie isn't any of that, so to speak. Uh, and they have turned to Lenin and Marx, et cetera, and the working class mm -hmm. to the best of their understanding. Uh, 
But what we are saying is that, and I guess we could call Lenin as the author of the October Revolution, uh, mm. as brilliant and courageous as his contribution is, it was not the last word. Mm. And that the American revolutionary process needs Du Bois. How did, how did uh, Derek formulate that again, Emily? Unusual, that the, dynamics. unusual dynamics. And somehow that keeps tugging upon my, my brain, unusual dynamics. And in fact, this Lenin Du Bois is an unusual synthesis. And most, at least the ones that we can follow, are most, not just young thinkers and activists, but thinkers and activists even of the past, never imagine Du Bois as a co-author of a new theory of American revolutionary process. They never imagined it. It was Marxism, Leninism, uh, mm. and then others might fill in the um, intellectual theoretical gaps. In other words, Du Bois could be important, quote unquote, but not uh, fundamental, not foundational. And in this concept of an unusual dynamic for us, Du Bois is not just or merely uh, somebody that you could use to talk about abolition, democracy, something, you know, but Du Bois is grounding for this new moment in history. Mm. And that without Du Bois, I'll put it this way, Without Du Bois, Lenin and Leninism has, outside of the of the of the general theoretical concepts of the state, let us say, imperialism, and those types of things that Lenin focuses upon. But without Du Bois, it has no yeah. uh, life. I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. No living reality mm -hmm. in the American revolutionary process and for the American people. Even how to understand the American people, yeah. Du Bois is decisive. Right. But uh, let me turn it over to you, Stan. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yes, I, I asked a question about the four revolutions because I wanted to make sure I was understanding the framework um, and my assumption was correct. Um, but sometimes people also talk about the fourth technological revolution. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the fourth industrial revolution. Right, the fourth industrial revolution. And so, um, uh, in fact, MIT has a course on the fourth industrial revolution what? where they're looking at that. Um, so very quickly, um, on my background, um, I do not come from a political science or uh, social science background. I was actually a physics major as an undergrad. I went to a historically black college and university in Baltimore, Morgan State University. I was born here in Philadelphia, way up the at Temple University. Okay. And um, later I ended up moving down to Maryland and going to college in Maryland. And subsequently, 
um, I went into the IT uh, profession, mm -hmm. um, initially focusing on IT for the defense industry. Mm -hmm. And I was doing anti-submarine warfare analysis and doing sonar analysis and that type of thing. And then later I ended up working for some Silicon Valley um, software companies. One of them, some of you may be familiar with, called Oracle. They're a large mm -hmm. database company. I worked there. Um, and so I've been working in IT now for 37 years. Okay. And um, later on, I went back to school and got an executive MBA from Georgetown, and I had a focus on international business. So I'm well steeped in all the principles of capitalism. <laughs> Without being a capitalist. <laughs> so, um, and um, through that experience, I had a chance to meet Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright and Barack Obama and a whole lot of other people from the. <laughs> so. I understand that perspective fairly well. Right. Um, and then um, professionally, I have a number of certifications in the world of IT. Mm -hmm. And then most recently, um, I studied um, digital transformation at MIT, focusing on artificial intelligence, machine learning, data analytics, and uh, transformations like moving yeah. things from uh, on-premises sites to the cloud and that type of thing. Also blockchain and cryptocurrencies and all that. Mm -hmm. So that's my background. <laughs> I have more of a technical background. So I'm very, um, I'm overjoyed to be here to <laughs> listen to things from a political perspective. One of the things, uh, my first interaction with W.B. Du Bois happened when I was uh, 19 years old. Mm -hmm. I was a, a college student and uh, Kwame Touré, mm -hmm. uh, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating mm -hmm. Committee, had created a new organization based on the work of Kwame Nkrumah and uh, Sekou Touré um, in Ghana and um, Senegal. He had created a new organization called the All African People's Revolutionary Party, which mm -hmm. was actually created by Kwame Nkrumah, then taken up by Sekou Touré later on. And so uh, they used to go around to different colleges and uh, they would talk about Pan-Africanism and creating a um, united um, Africa and so forth. And so their first book was The Voices of the World in Africa. Mm. Wow. So that was the first, that was yeah. like, first, many people start with yeah. the souls of black folks as their first introduction yeah. to the voice, but for me it was the world in Africa. Wow. And I read that book and I was totally overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> first, um, he had what I like to call a sesquipedalian vocabulary. That is, he used a lot of oh. big words. <laughs> okay, so I had to strengthen my vocabulary just to understand. Um, but then I learned a lot about the world, and one of the things that impressed me was not only his understanding of um, economics and mm. uh, politics and sociology, but he was a real—he was a true uh, Renaissance man, mm. and he brought all these different disciplines to his understanding. And I was just fascinated by that. Now, one of the challenges, and Tony and I were exchanging um, some text messages earlier in the week. One of the challenges I found, though, with the voice was because he was a Renaissance man, oftentimes people had difficulty understanding his writings. Mm. And so even in the All African People's Revolutionary Party, or what we used to call the APRP, uh, a lot of people uh, didn't continue with the study group because it was a study group uh, before you could be admitted to the party. And participate in the study group. A lot of people couldn't make it through um, the world in Africa because they found it too difficult. Mm, yeah. And so one of the things that I often look for when studying the voice are, are there references and guides that I 
can point people to to help them understand and get the benefit out of um, out of the text. So interestingly enough, as I was driving up today, I was listening to um, something that was done in 2021 by um, Skip Gates, Henry Louis Gates out of Harvard, and Eric Cromer, and they were discussing Black Reconstruction. Huh. Mm. Okay. This was recent. This it was yes, and um, it was it was done in 2021, and um, it was very fascinating. It's like a 50 minute, uh, a little bit over an hour. Um, I can send the link and so forth for those yes. who are interested. Mm -hmm. um, and they were talking about the significance of this book. And one thing that uh, both Gates and Foner said is that um, there are a lot of great chapters. They were talking about the general strike, which interestingly enough was mm -hmm. the topic for today. Mm -hmm. But they were also saying the one thing, because um, Gates said when he went to Yale, he was introduced to this book as a sophomore. And at that time, they weren't trying to get their students to read 700 pages of the voice, right? <laughs> but the one chapter that he thought was very important was the propaganda of history. Yeah. And they said that every student should read the propaganda of history. And he talked about the genesis of the book, where the voice had been encouraged to write Black Reconstruction, because there was a book that had come out a couple years earlier. And uh, it talked about how Reconstruction was a total and complete disaster for this country. Okay, and there was known, and I won't go too much into this because here's the expert right next to me, so I'll let him focus on that. <laughs> they talked about the Dunning School at University, mm -hmm. um, Columbia University in New York, and so forth, and their whole focus and how they tried to portray the world in a certain way, in other words, create a certain narrative. Okay, and so one of the things you're talking about by unifying um, the concepts of Lenin, Lenin and Du Bois is creating a new narrative mm -hmm. that Americans can understand and allow them to think about how to transform the world. So I'm absolutely fascinated yeah. by that thought. Can I ask a question? What did Eric Foner say mm. about Black Reconstruction? Mm. Um, in, in what terms? What was his evaluation of the text of the book? Oh, he said it was it was a um, it was an excellent text. Uh, it, it prevented a well. First of all, you know, without going too much into cultural theory and so forth, mm -hmm. you know, basically the thought is is that history is not just a statement of facts, mm -hmm. but a matter of interpretation. Yeah. yeah. And he pointed out, Eric Foner pointed out that oftentimes the historians um, focus on those facts that supported that argument, and you have to be very careful when looking looking mm -hmm. at history and studying history because this claim of objectivity doesn't exist, right. okay? People come from certain perspectives. There's some histories that are more accurate and are more useful than others, but um, the people who um, created the counter-narrative to the voice had a certain direction they were trying to move the country in, they were trying to create certain policies and so forth. And so it was very important to be aware of that. And so he said, the voice came in and said, no, a lot of that is mistaken, a lot of that's incorrect. Even though he didn't do primary research for this book because he didn't have the opportunity, that's a whole different discussion. He looked at a lot of the primary research that had been done by others, and he used their own data to counteract much of what they had said mm -hmm. and came up with a new interpretation. And though um, some people have problems, like there's an um, author who did an autobiography of, um, excuse me, a biography of the boys, Francis Broderick. Mm -hmm. He was very critical of. Um, the whole notion of the general strike that the voice comes up with, right? He said, well, that's really a false analogy. It's really not analogous to a true strike and so forth. Despite all that, what Eric Foner said and what Henry Louis Gates said as well is that he placed the emphasis on the importance of the slaves into the economy of the South and to the economy of the North and how by 
as they discuss in the general strike chapter, how by the blacks leaving the South in terms of providing the food and materials for the Confederate army, how that transformed the war. Mm. And so even though initially um, the North and South wanted to believe that the Civil War was not about slavery, it became very apparent shortly after the war began that it was all about slavery. This is very interesting. Uh, and we won't, we don't have to discuss it now, but um, uh, one of the things we want to take up in the, the conference on Black Reconstruction is how Eric Foner presents a competing mm -hmm. narrative to Black Reconstruction. And uh, so much so that uh, many people feel that, well, we really don't need Du Bois's Black Reconstruction uh, now that we have Foner's Reconstruction. I think he would probably, dis I think he would disagree with that. Uh, and that's an interesting observation because I've, at least the way I read the text, is that it is constructed to be a competing narrative. And by that I'm saying, um, well, we, we can get, we, we'll get more into it, but I, I, that's interesting. Uh, you know, 2019 and 1987, when the book is published, when Fona's book is, is like light years away, mm -hmm. uh, could be considered different worlds. So it would seem that Foner would, and obviously has now, uh, been more, uh, at least publicly, more appreciative of Black Reconstruction. But for many people, including Cornel West, I always heard him say this, and I was always put off by it, that he would never mention Black Reconstruction, but he would always talk about the uh, magisterial work by Eric Foner. Uh, Eric Foner's is at best, and, and that's why I said Nuri and I are reading through his book again, uh, is at best, in other words, it's an academic work with no uh, revolutionary implications, as, as we think of a fourth American revolution. This is Cornel West saying this? Well, Cornel West never mentioned Black Reconstruction until recently. Uh, he, he would always talk about Eric Foner's, and this is the historic profession and mm -hmm. public intelligentsia who said, well, the book, if you want to understand Reconstruction, it's Eric Foner. Uh, Black Reconstruction had been buried pretty much since the early 1940s, and then with the Cold War, uh, you know, it was it was buried even deeper. And then in the middle 80s, 1980s, Foner comes out with this book, and which I think, uh, just from the politics of publishing and all of that, um, uh, gives the American ruling elite what they needed. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, pretty much you had the Dunning School and then you had Du Bois. And for the ruling class, neither was acceptable. Mm -hmm. And so you have Eric Foner, a so-called progressive. The name Foner means a lot mm -hmm. anyway because of his uncle, Philip. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so he mentions Du Bois to my reading once in the preface. And, and there's never mentioned, and see, I, I think, and we'll, we'll go through this in the conference, that certain things that Du Bois does, and, and Gerald Horn is in the current time, the most egregious in doing this. For instance, he writes, well, we, we'll, we'll, we won't talk a lot about it right now, but he writes a uh, essay in the Nation magazine a couple few months ago. And he says, well, Du Bois talked about a general strike, but it was really more like a wildcat strike. Well, uh, okay. okay. So we're getting semantics now. Yeah, right, 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 right. Uh, uh, nickel and diming right. Du Bois. I don't, well. And so, and so if not Du Bois, then are the, you know, is the only revolutionary tradition, and this is what I, I, I think Foner does, is the only revolutionary tradition bourgeois democracy? Or is there what Du Bois talks about as a revolutionary democracy? But we will deal with these questions at the conference. Those, those are great questions. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would encourage everyone, in fact, I have the link here, because okay. as I said, I was listening to it as yeah, I way up, really like um, to watch this, because um, in this, um, Eric Foner gives you a different impression, okay. because um, both he and um, Cornell, oh, excuse me, Skip Gates say that the boys was mad. Okay, so I, I I'm not familiar with the 1987 um, the big news book, mm -hmm. right? But they they both agree, and I'm gonna forward this to you. Oh, um, you. That um, and you can forward it to everyone else mm -hmm. that the boys was definitely the man, and. Um, It's funny, um, just for everyone's information, uh, he was, uh, <clears throat> Tony mentioned um, Wilmer Lee. Mm -hmm. he's, he's a very good friend of mine. Yeah. Okay. And um, I've had a chance to uh, meet Gerald Horn, and I've met uh, Cornell West multiple times. Mm -hmm. He actually grew up with Wilmer Lee, so they're very good friends mm -hmm. and so forth. So it's a very small world. Mm -hmm. yeah. And as you go through the world, you begin to see the world get smaller and smaller. It's true. It does. Can I say something? But hold on. What point were you making? So I um, I have some problems with uh, Cornell's take on the voice in general. Yes. Going back to his work um, with Henry Louis Gates called The Future of the Race. That's right. And so he criticizes Du Bois because he felt that Du Bois didn't express enough Chekhovian sensibilities. I don't know if any of you are Yeah, but Chekhov, right? The Russian author. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's. And I'm like, so I wasn't really hip to Chekhov at that time. And I went and I, read, I went back and I read all his plays and so forth. And oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I read all Chekhov's plays, and, and Chekhov was hip, and I've actually gone and seen some performances and so oh, forth. But that wasn't necessarily germane to Du Bois. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm like, I'm not sure where Cornell was coming from, but I, I definitely, definitely disagree with that assessment. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, I admired his knowledge of Du Bois, all the different scholars. And that's how I ended up. Um, meeting with Tony because uh, I was looking to get different yeah. perspectives. Again, I'm not someone who has studied this formally. I'm an autodidact, as I like to say, when it comes to this mm -hmm. stuff, and I like to get different views and so forth. So I already have some issues with um, 
um, Cornell West's assessment of Du Bois. Yeah. And I have, I, I don't, I'm not really, I mean, I, I know um, Gerald's horn views of Paul Robeson and so forth, and I read his biography of Robeson, but I didn't know what his perspective was on um, Du Bois. Oh, this is huge. I mean, and we're going to really explore these things in the Du Bois conference. Mm -hmm. It's it's something. It is really something. Uh, but go go ahead. I'm sorry, Seraphina. No, it's just back to the Du Bois Lenin thing. Mm -hmm. And I looked up Henry Winston's strategy of Black Agenda. He worked on like Frederick um, Douglass and King. Mm -hmm. He was also thinking about Karl Marx. Um, and I think it was King. I forgot what sentences he was trying to do. But in class, race, and black liberation. Can I read a oh, portion? Please, please, please. It said, it's in the portion of class, race, and black liberation, the problem of the 20th mm -hmm. century. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, those who propagate the primacy of color over, over class are in fundamental conflict with the life and works of W.B. Du Bois, in whose name they often claim to speak. In Strategy for a Black Agenda, I pointed out that the imperial, and he quotes himself, the imperialist enemy and its allies and collaborators come in many colors. Imperialism is headquartered in Tokyo as well as in Washington, London, Bonn, Paris, Lipson, and Prioria. Prioria. The betray yeah, sorry. The betrayers of the people, whether in the Sudan, the Congo, Ghana, Vietnam, Bolivia, Brazil, Paraguay, Pakistan, the Philippines, or Guyana come in all colors. The oppressors themselves are never divided by color. They compete and make war against each other with the lives of the people for the quote unquote right to dominate and exploit. Among themselves, the United States, British, French, Italian, German, Japanese, Belgian, Dutch, and South African imperialists are colorblind. They are likewise colorblind when it comes to bribing and manipulating the people's betrayers in Africa, Asia, and the Americas. These colorblind monopolists exploit color differences to bind the oppressed to their common class interests, which imperatively call for unity against imperialism. At the beginning of this century, the young Du Bois stated that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the colorline. And today's advocates of skin strategy often quote often quote this to justify linking Garveyism to Pan-Africanism. In this, they take their cue from George Padmore, ignoring Du Bois' uncompromising struggle against Garveyism in all its forms and misinterpreting Du Bois' meaning when he spoke of the color line. Even though, as he says in his autobiography, he was not yet a Marxist, the young Du Bois was correct in stating that the color line uh, the color line is indeed the problem of the 20th century. In the same year that Du Bois advanced this concept, the young Lenin was applying the liberating ideas of Marx and Engels to, to the imperialist stage of capitalism, concluding that the workers and peoples within the Tsarist empire, as elsewhere throughout the imperialist world, could defeat their common oppressors only by overcoming disunity at the point of differences in color and nationality. Lenin's lifelong work demonstrated that he understood what Du Bois was driving at. Du Bois declared that the color line was the problem of the 20th century. He did not say it was the solution. Mm -hmm. As Lenin demonstrated, the solution lies in a strategy to overcome the disunity of the oppressed 
and exploited at the line of differences in color and nationality. Because Lenin led in building the first political party dedicated to the solution of the color line as the problem of the 20th century, the October Socialist Revolution was able to put an end for the first time in history to class, national, and racial oppression. Mm -hmm. This is why the Marxist-Leninist principles of the, of the October Revolution to this day forms the ideological basis for the solution to the problems of the 20th century in Africa and in every other continent. On the other hand, the neo-pan-Africanists have turned Du Bois' famous statement into the opposite of its real meaning. Their black skin color strategy aggravates the problem rather than offers a solution to the problem of the 20th century." Uh, end quote. Of a person who adopts, oh, sorry, excuse me, let me see. Okay, let me see, let me see. Okay, just to end this section. Mm -hmm. Of a person who adopts bourgeois nationalist positions in any form, which of course, includes the primacy of skin over class concept. Lenin wrote, he is unembarrassed even by the fact that by his tactics of division and dismemberment, he is reducing to nil the great call for the rallying and unity of the proletarians of all nations, all races and languages, uh, collected works in Moscow, 1961. So then Henry Winston says that in implying Marxism to imperialism, capitalism's final stage, Lenin demonstrated that monopolies capital that monopoly capital's role was now international and embraced even those areas where pre-capitalist formations still prevailed. Lenin recognized that in this new stage in history, the working classes of all races, nations, and people was destined to take lead in the fight to replace capitalism with socialism. Lenin was the first to see that the international working class, even though it had not yet developed as a class within large parts of the world, would emerge as the decisive force on a global scale. This is why he saw the working class as the basis for solving what Du Bois called the problem of the 20th century. Lenin was uncompromising in the struggle for the quote-unquote ra the rallying and unity of all proletarians of all nations, all races, and all languages, for the solidarity of the Russian working class with the nations oppressed by Russian imperialism, including the races and peoples within the underdeveloped Asian periphery of the Tsar's empire. It was the Marxist-Leninist principles of class and national liberation that gave birth to the October Socialist Revolution bring all races and peoples in one-sixth of the world from imperialism and opening up the epoch in which the fight for liberation from oppression and exploitation would be merged with the struggles leading toward the transition to socialism on a global scale. Yeah. And we're going to get, we're going to get further into that when we talk about the 100th anniversary of the founding of the USSR. This is very significant. Okay. Uh, before anyone else? There's some comments oh, yes, can go yeah, to from Facebook. Um, so Perba, Blaze, both say good morning. Um, Wayne gives a heart symbol. Um, in regards to the earlier conversations we had around Korea, Wayne says, this, this disinformation from my interpretation, while lacking better concepts or terminologies, 
is affecting our thinking from a globalized American corporate controlled apparatus. And then dispositive, it's a, he says um, dispositive. I think it's like a French term mm -hmm. from Foucault about like the apparatus that reproduces certain systems. Mm. Um, Ron Frazier uh, quotes, emphasizes certain uh, parts of our discussion says liberation theology, the South Korean peninsula was bombed. Um, I don't quite understand what he was saying. He said he's just quoting oh, okay. um, parts okay. of our okay. conversation. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then Don DeBar, in addition to our conversations on war and peace, says, I think for the benefit of the audience and also to contextualize what's happening in Japan right now, it's useful to mention that the U.S. occupation is really a is really a continuation of the Japanese occupation that began in the late 20s and early 30s and, and that took all those lives and all those atrocities. Mm. The U.S. basically substituted its officers over the Japanese occupation troops until they could swap them out for U.S. troops, mm -hmm. and they've been there ever since. Last month, Japan announced it intends to pursue an even closer relationship with the United States which is a pretty remarkable statement considering it's, it's already under military occupation. And now they want the authority to build offensive missile capacity as a, quote, retaliatory strike force, end quotes. In other words, complete and total abrogation of Article 9 of their constitution. The point being that the U.S. basically took over the Ch Japanese empire, except for China that liberated itself and some few other places and now is going to war with Russia, with Japan as an ally. The same as is happening in Europe with Germany as an ally. Um, Dondabar uh, also links to, um, or uh, responds with uh, links from RT on this Japanese-US alliance. Um, Ron Frazier continues to quote parts of our discussion um, and then Daniel, I guess Danny, Daniel Lee Eisenberg, or Danny um, speaks to the uh, October Revolution. So he says, the goal of the October Revolution was to launch a civil war against the capitalists, quote, turn the imperialist war into civil war, end quote, mm -hmm. as Lenin put it. In particular, the point of signing the Brett's the Tops mm -hmm. Treaty was to create the necessity the necessity of revolution in Europe. Um, parentheses, that's why Russia was the, quote, weakest link in the chain of imperialism, end quote. You grab the weakest link to take down the whole chain, to take, you grab the weakest link to take the whole chain down, in parentheses. There were already Marxists in power since May 1917, and October was aimed at the rest of the world. This is why Lenin justifies German naval mutinies and the rights of self-determination of nations to justify why the international proletariat will come to the rescue of the Soviet Union. And as Lenin puts it in 1920, quotes, Russia will cease to be the model and will once again become a backward country um, in the Soviet and the socialist sense, end quotes. Certainly Debs heard the call. He called it the, the day of the people and the SPD, which was against this, was sending soldiers to try to contain the revolution. But if there was no Du Bois-Lenin synthesis at the time, 
And if that is essential for a revolution in America, was the October Revolution bound to fail? Say that one more time. If that... But if there was no Du Bois Lenin synthesis at the time, and if that is essential for a revolution in America, was the October Revolution bound to fail? Was the October Revolution bound to fail? Mm -hmm. That's that the end of our comments from Facebook. Oh, we have YouTube comments. Okay. Because we're on YouTube now, too. So from the YouTube audience, Shade's dad says, hi, Sha. <laughs> he found you. Yeah. And then Shade says, hi, dad. <laughs> and then... Um, Dust James says, good morning, all. Todd Doherty says, see, Todd Doherty has switched from Facebook to YouTube. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is, um, you know, giving some advice to Michelle about finding Chinese performers. Should mm. we talk to Xin Yun? <laughs> that is a joke. Todd Doherty is a joke. Oh, that's funny. Why is that funny? Oh, yeah. Oh, is that ballet? That it's weird. everywhere. Oh, Their right. banner is I'm China good. before communism. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're before the US all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Kimberly Wadi says, What are the features of this unusual dynamic, or has that yet to that be determined? Yes. Any de more details available? Of this unusual, yeah. 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 and we're working, we're on, working this. on it. And she's invited to join us <laughs> in working this out. Even come to to the Du Bois symposium. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, if if there are no um, other uh, comments <laughs> or discussion on these points, uh, perhaps we could. Uh, go to discussing the 100th anniversary of the formation of the USSR, um, which has not existed in any of your lifetimes. Mm. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you were alive. 1990 represents. Oh, at the end. I was one years old. <laughs> one year, one years years old. old. Oh, you okay? All right. So, uh, you expect one person outside of myself and and my colleague. Yeah. But um, you know, it's almost been erased from the collective memory of the people of this country. Uh, there were only embers of it in the memories of the uh, Russian and formerly Soviet people. Yeah. until the war in Ukraine, and I want to come to that. But uh, the formation of the Soviet Union in 1922, I think December 30th, when the treaty was signed between what became 15 nations, uh, a treaty was signed to unite them under a single state. Uh, and this is very, very important. Tsarist Russia was a geographic space that constituted one sixth of the planet Earth. Uh, the population of Tsarist Russia at that time was under 200 million. By the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, 
uh, the Soviet Union uh, in terms of its population was about um, uh, 350 million. So there'd been a tremendous growth in the population in spite of the Civil War and in spite of World War II, where in World War II they lost 27 million people. Uh, but their population grew considerably from the time of the founding of the USSR. Uh, but why was it necessary to form this new state? And I want to underline the word state because what was formed was the result of 15 what were considered distinct nations uh, cooperating in such a way where each of the constituent parts gave up something in the interest of a stronger and larger unity. Uh, and in many ways, it remains an example uh, for a Pan-Asia or a Pan-East Asia or Korean unity where each side to make it work, the North and the South each would have to give up something in the interest of something more durable, more sustainable and stronger. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, what would occur in Korea has certain qualitative differences from what took place in the Soviet Union. Mm. So 1922 is five years after the October Revolution. So in Russia, already state power was in the hands of a party and an ideology associated with Lenin. Uh, which would later be called communism. But they took power uh, over a state which ruled many, many other people. Mm -hmm. In fact, Russia, Tsarist Russia, was known as a prison house of nations. And so you got these 15 huge nations like Ukraine, like uh, Belarusia, like Kazakhstan, like Uzbekistan, mm. um, you know, uh, which were by any definition nations with the right to self-determination. Mm -hmm. In other words, if the Russian Revolution were to live up to its principles, it could not only free the proletariat, in this instance, primarily the Russian working class, but it had to free all of these literally colonial nations that were ruled by the czars. It could not say, oh, we're for the liberation, like if somebody came here and said, oh, we're for the liberation of the working class, but then when it comes to the racially oppressed, well, we'll get to that later on, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. You had to solve both. Mm -hmm. 
and neither could be seen, at least the way I view the process, as more decisive than the other. This is a big question in terms of the development of the theory of Leninism, the national question, mm. which if it were developed in Marxism, it was very, um, uh, not well developed, but it was Lenin who had to solve it in practice. And so it was the right of self-determination. And then uh, five years later, after the re revolution, um, all of the revolutionary elements in all these nations came together and said, we will do better if we are united, but we can only be united if you recognize that we as formerly oppressed nations mm -hmm. have certain rights mm -hmm. based upon our status as oppressed people. I don't know, does that make sense? So this treaty forming the USSR, which means the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Now, each of those words is very important. Obviously, uh, the union is very important. Socialists, I mean, Soviet. Mm -hmm. Soviet means councils. The state form or the form of the state after the Russian Revolution was uh, uh, from the bottom up. In other words, it was not the declaration, and this is where a lot of Western historians distort things. They say the Russian Revolution was a coup d'etat and the Bolsheviks took power and then dictated the form of government and state. Well, the Bolsheviks did take power the previous state collapsed, leaving a political vacuum. They, they filled it, but then who would be their base, their constituency? And their base in the initial thing were the workers in cities like Moscow and Petersburg. But these workers had expressed their revolutionary capacity by organizing themselves politically in what were called Soviets or councils, workers' councils. So an example, let us say we get into a revolutionary situation in Philadelphia and the workers in different parts of Philadelphia organize councils where they can say what they want how the government and their area will be run. So you might have a, a North Philadelphia Council or a Southwest Philadelphia Council or a um, West Oak Lane Council. So these councils would, as they developed in Russia, would become modes of governing in a situation where there was no government. So when it comes to forming the state and I would say the form of state power, and this is something um, we'll have to look at as we look at North Korea, the form of state power could be any number of possibilities. In Russia, the form of state power was the Soviet or the councils, 
i.e. grassroots people's organization. Isn't that fascinating? You know, so it was not dictated from above. They already existed. And so the Bolsheviks, which in a lot of ways meant Lenin, said that no, these must now go from councils mm. where people are doing local government to the form that the state will take. And so you get this hierarchy of councils from local councils or councils in, of peasants, councils of workers in, in uh, let us say, a Petersburg. You got a Petersburg, so, you know, all the little Soviet councils come together. We form one throughout Philadelphia or throughout Petersburg. But then you would have the local city councils. Well, yeah. we wouldn't call it, like they say, Philadelphia City Council. Yeah. If we were in Russia, they would call it uh, Philadelphia's Soviet, you know? Same thing. But of course, you know, the way language is used uh, as propaganda, if you say Soviet, oh my God, that's the worst thing they could have. And then you say, well, let me just translate the word for you. It means council. Which, and if, if you go to Russia and you said, I'm a member of Philadelphia City Council, they would say, oh, you're a member of the Philadelphia Soviet. <laughs> but, up, Energy is very different. Yeah, so you have these, <laughs> these Soviets, and, and, and you know, in their form of structuring political power, they go from the lowest to the highest. And the National Council, or Soviet, is known as the Supreme Soviet. So, you know, so... <laughs> The way language again is used as propaganda to say supreme, oh, that's something very suspicious. Mm. And then somebody said, but I like the Supremes and Diana <laughs> Ross, you know? oh my God. <laughs> or the dynamic, uh, so what is, the, the group that you like so much. I mean, but then when you, when you put it with the, uh, you say the Supreme, so, oh my God, it must be a fascist dictatorship. But it only meant the highest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the highest Soviet. Right. And that's the same as what we would call the Congress of the United States, but it's yeah. just the Supreme Soviet. Um, the other issue for them was that and this is a difference, uh, by the way, we have to look at this too, Anna. The difference between bourgeois organization of power and revolutionary organization of power. Where would leadership come from? And could the Bolsheviks, who had taken power, suddenly abandon it and say, well, y'all do your own thing. In the Moscow Soviet, y'all go ahead and do you. The Petersburg, y'all do y'all. Well, that would be an abdication of revolutionary responsibility. Mm -hmm. you know? So the revolutionaries had to organize themselves as the party of the state. Mm -hmm. In other words, as a guarantor of the power of the working class 
over the state. And you could not legislate it. It was not a matter of, well, we pass a law that the Communist Party uh, will do X, Y, and Z. And then, uh, and we'll let other parties come in here and we'll debate and talk trash for the next hundred years. Mm -hmm. You know, this is one of the crises in India's politics right now. Uh, obviously, it is, we see it uh, as a, we see it in relationship to the political crisis in the United States. Because just like with Kevin McCarthy mm -hmm. and what they had 14 or 15 votes and he finally won after he conceded <laughs> everything, you know, he gave it all <laughs> up. <laughs> but because he, he had no real power. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, leadership is responsibility. It's not just a performative thing. Oh, I'm the leader of my local council and I'm going to get me a you know new car and drive around and on you know Thanksgiving give out a few turkeys and I look great and take a photo with Meek Mill or somebody else. But that, that's performative leadership, very bourgeois. The question of revolutionary leadership is to base is to based upon a high level of ideological and theoretical consciousness to guide a working class that has just taken power or a party and parties that have taken power in the name of a working class who will not go back to the old form of czarist rule. Does that make kind of sense? Yeah. That meant that in forming the union of Soviet, and then this word socialist, okay, which means then if you go to the Central Asian republics, which are very different than Ukraine, mm. in every way. I mean, the Soviet, the, let me tell you if, you, if you go to Uzbekistan right now, which is in Central Asia, it would look more like this room. Oh, yeah. They look good. Yeah. I mean, they're Central Asian, yeah. which means that there are a lot of Koreans. Mm -hmm. right. You would not believe, by the way, the number of Koreans and Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm talking about speaking Korean, uh, Mandarin, I think Mandarin, uh, maybe... Uh, I don't know another dot, but you know, <laughs> but they're Chinese, but they are, you know, it, if you, cause I've been to Uzbekistan. Oh, oh. Many, Wait, what? Awesome. Yeah, many, many of them got expelled by the Japanese. Said it again? I think during the Japanese world of Manchuria and Korea, I think a lot of them were exiled there. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. To like to Russia and to Central Asia. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so, uh, Uzbekistan, I'm telling you, would look more like this room mm, cool. than like uh, <laughs> like uh, Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was, you know, so you had to. What would unite, in effect, would what were distinct civilizations? One, it would be a common commitment to build a socialist economy throughout the space of formerly Tsarist Russia. 
And the last thing, the R, you get the U and then you get two S's and an R at the end, Republic. Mm. Which means, now Republic could be a bourgeois Republic or it could be a revolutionary democratic Republic. Obviously when Mao and the communists took power in 1949 in China, the first thing he said, we declare the People's Republic of mm. China. Mm. A vision which goes back to Sun Yat-sen, of course. The Republican form of a state. It is socialist, it is Republican, and it's Soviet. That's what the state, that's mm. what the Soviet okay. state was. And, and, you know, you can, I'll tell you, you know, this is this is what has turned me off in recent years, and I empathize with all people who hate reading books because you know I become a hater of books, man. I hate to tell, and and don't follow my footsteps. You know, because I hate the people that write books. <laughs> I hate their motives. I hate their dishonesty. I hate their kowtowing to publishers. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if, a, if you can find a truthful man or woman who is writing books today, I'd like to meet them. I mean, it's always bending the truth, distorting the truth. And we have many examples of that. So what was in effect a resolution of the deepest divides in Tsarist Russia in a way that would mean equity, equality, power to the people, all of those things, the Western propaganda has distorted it all. Soviet means council. You know, if I wanna go, if I started speaking Russian, or went down to the Philadelphia City Council and tried to, you know, like act like I'm so hip and everything and, and try to fool people, say I'm speaking Russia. I would say, and here I am at the Soviet sky. <laughs> you know, but, but anyway, you see what I'm saying. So it was formed in 1929, 19, uh, pardon me, 1922, of the Soviet Union, 1922 to 1991, mm -hmm. the relationships of these 15 nations to one another was treaty or law based. Mm -hmm. They were not forced into the Soviet Union by the evil Stalin, mm -hmm. you know? That wasn't the case. Now, besides these nations, within each of the nations, there were distinct ethnic groups and nationalities. Mm. So even let us take Ukraine today, which is in the news. We now know that there are two fundamental language groups mm -hmm. in Russia. There are probably more, but two, Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers. Mm. And the two languages are not that different. Uh, in fact, Historians argue that the founding of Russia 
as a nation, as a civilization, is in Kiev, not in Moscow. So the two nations, as it were, have a common origin. The languages are pretty similar. I think Ukraine is more shaped by the Polish language and Russian, uh, uh, I, I don't know all of its roots, but anyway, two language groups. So how do you resolve the difference? Because in any situation like this, an oppressive regime like the czarist regime rules by divide and rule. So you give advantages to one over the other. And that is throughout um, uh, what became these 15 republics. For example, you go to Uzbekistan. Uzbeks are a combination of many peoples, just like throughout Central Asia. Just like you get the word Afghanistan, Pakistan, mm. you know. Uh, well, what do these uh, Uzbeks, what do they have in common? They all are stands. Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, right? Yes. Which means they are similar in linguistics and culture. You know, language, by the way, is the foundation mm -hmm. of nationality. Mm. That's why, you know, people from the United States go over and say, well, everybody in Uzbekistan looks like a Mongolian. But what are they arguing about? They don't have a racial or phenotypic difference. But that ain't the only thing that people have differences of. Mm. It is language. Yeah. You disrespect my language. You are disrespecting my mm. culture, my right. religion, my art, everything. Yeah. That's why on the Korean Peninsula, mm. one of the great contradictions is linguistics. Mm. And by the way, Anna, I learned this from your grandmother. <laughs> yeah. Who? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Who? Her grandmother said, "Look." I don't like anything about North Korea, but the fact mm. that they have preserved classical Korean. Mm. That they don't try to write in a Chinese script mm. or try to make or write Korean in, in, a, in a, you know, Western script. Right. They keep it 100, as they say. <laughs> because language is everything. So you get like in these, in, in uh, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and T Tajikistan, the Tajiks, oh. they're very, very interesting people. The I say what? <laughs> How do you not forget the Chinese? Well, I've been there. Oh. I, and I interact with a lot of people. Wow. But, so, but within each of these nations, you have distinct ethnic groups. Yeah. And so, According to the Soviet demographers, besides the 15 republics, there were over 100 distinct ethnic and linguistic groups within the Soviet Union. Now, if you're going to give national rights to the Uzbeks, let us say, then you have to give rights to the minority groups within Uzbekistan. They might be Turkic speaking, they might be uh, uh, Korean. And these, by the way, the Korean language, I, I have speculated. And of course, uh, Nuri and I 
I don't know if Anna got into this argument yet. Well, I think Anna's on my side. The Korean language might be older than the Chinese language. See, all of this oh, stuff that, oh, the Koreans are just the Chinese speaking a different language, Emily a different dialect. The Korean language is a distinct language. Korean civilization is not derived from great Han civilization. Wait, or should I just that? say Han? <laughs> who, says who says that Korea is derived from China? Over here. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Or, or, at, or you, can or you actually, I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't want to, you know, uh, get too deep into this. Uh, but there are Chinese nationalists who would claim that Korea is a derivative of China. That's that's what I'm gonna tell you. You know how you can, you know how you could see this. See, first of all, Kim Jong Un. I go back to Kim Il Sung. They never bowed down. You know what I'm saying? They never bowed down because it's often the larger nation that claims the smaller nation comes from it. Now I'm not saying so. I, I don't want to. I don't want to get into a Korea. China thing from in the Afro-American mm -hmm. side that we get in here to fight and no, I'm not saying that, Alice. <laughs> but uh, oh yeah, the same <laughs> thing. So so, so all of these ethnic groups, over a hundred of them, also had rights that had to be recognized, and language is key. Right. Don't tell me to where. Um, uh, Uzbek uh, clothing or sing Uzbek songs and I'm not an Uzbek. Right. I just live in Uzbekistan. Yeah. Right. Now we can all get along in Uzbekistan but you got to recognize me too. Right. So a vast set of treaties and legal agreements bound all of these people together under, and here's a key word, a democratic state mm. that is also a republic. Mm. Cool. I mean, it, it's, it's a, an amazing achievement for 1922, yeah. when 90% of humanity is under one or another form of colonialism, yeah. a new model. In fact, I wish the model had been adopted by the African nations. Mm. All these nations, and I'm, you know, I got a, a million and a half, and Nigeria got 90 million, and but we all can uh, have our separate mm. flags and talk in the UN. That don't mean shit. You have to have the development. Let's say it's just West Africa, the West African nations. There has to be a recognition that unity, that there's strength in unity. That's what the USSR established. And it worked. It worked. Yeah, you would get Russian nationalists who would say, oh, Russia is a superior this, that, and the other. 
But the Kazakhs would say, well, that's you talking. Mm -hmm. They would say, dig, or, or the Mongolians would say, we come out of a, a nomadic sheep herding tradition. And, and you know, we produce great chess players and prize fighters, you know, and such as such as, you know, and that's the way we are. So don't come and tell me that the way you roll in Moscow is the way we should roll here. I don't come out of, I'm a, a no, have you anybody ever meet a nomad, by the way? <laughs> No, okay. we have to I mean, no, no. Oh, you come out of a nomad? No, there's a lot of influencers nowadays who like to claim that they are digital nomads. So yeah. They document themselves. Digital nomads are real, though. They, so they do. do. But, but historically, obviously, keep up at nomadic for much longer, different oh. ways, right? Say that one more time. Like, what? historically, people have always, there have been thousands. About tens of thousands of years of nomadism. Oh yeah. Well, no, nomadism is a form of, of, among other things. First of all, nomads are very tribal people. Yeah. Very tribal. Uh, and by tribe, I'm talking. You talking about family values? Mm. Nomads have strong, very strong family values. Well, they had to. Mm -hmm. We're always on the move. Right. From place to place. Nomads have a different relationship to nature mm -hmm. and animals. Mm -hmm. I was down with some nomads in Somalia and they were mainly, uh, they were nomadic. They had uh, cows and shit like that. But <laughs> but you know what their, their main animal was? No. Goat? Goat. Wait, like, camel. Camel. The camel. Yeah! <laughs> 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 and a, a camel is a very intelligent animal. That's why in in Arabia, you see they still wear that the, the costume. And you ain't gonna go over there and tell them cats put on a three piece suit. They do drive expensive cars. You know they do that. They made that compromise, but they haven't given up on the camel. But no, so I'm just saying that people whose tradition is in sedentary agriculture mm -hmm. are not the same as people whose ancient traditions are in nomadism. Mm -hmm. And nomads, you don't, poetry, mm -hmm. song, yeah. amen. And you talk about strong family values. Uh, well, anyway, and they hold grudges. Makes sense. You messed over my brother. It might be a hundred years, but I'm getting you back. You will pay for this. But I'm just saying that. It's not to put, but I'm just saying. I, I remember once, and I'm, I'm going all around the thing. I was in the Soviet Union. And a young woman came up and she said, I am uh, I am a Mongolian of the Buryat tribe. So go ahead with your bad son. <laughs> a Mongolian but of the Buryat tribe. Now you can look it up. The Buryats of, well, don't look it up now. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why would you say a thing? Yeah. And then but you see, I'm saying this tapestry, not just of nation. See, the nation is one category, but the ethnic group, the ethnos, 
which is an extended family thing, is a whole nother category that has to be politically um, uh, accounted for in a democratic republic of the type that the Soviet Union was striving to be. It was a monumental task. Most of the people had been oppressed. Most of the people didn't like Russians, you know, for both ethnic and racial reasons. You see what I'm saying? All of that had to be resolved at different stages in the history of the Soviet Union. But it required a party of the type that Lenin formed to hold it together. And that party would not just be Russians, but it would be Uzbeks, Ukrainians, Moldovians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is what the Soviet Union was. It's breakup, I'm gonna use strong language, was a crime against the Soviet people and a crime against humanity. A democratic state built upon socialist principles and a kind of grassroots Republican democracy. It never been done. Did they make mistakes? Of course they did. Was it inevitable that they make mistakes? Or are they human? Mm-hmm. But it was, and that's why, by the way, so many African-Americans, not communists only, Langston Hughes, Louise Thompson Patterson, um, uh, uh, even the Soviet Union. You've heard of George Washington Carver, the great agronomist? They went down to Tuskegee where he was teaching and said, look, we would love for you to come to the Soviet Union and be a high official in helping us to organize our agriculture. This is a guy who couldn't uh, eat in certain restaurants, mm-hmm. in any restaurant that was not black, in the capital of the so-called greatest democracy in the world, being asked by a government that's supposed to be Stalinist and a dictatorship to come and help us organize mm-hmm. our agriculture. And he was a very humble and modest man. He said, no, well, I can't, and you know, so on, respectfully. There were other African-Americans who went to the Soviet Union precisely to help, well, first of all, to live there, to get from under Jim Crow in Alabama. So they went to the Soviet Union, start a new life working. And I met, you know, um, I hate this, but I sound like a friend of mine always. I don't want to put myself in the middle of the history of the Soviet Union, but just experiences. Take, for example, you've heard of the DuSable Museum in Chicago? Margaret Burroughs and her husband, Charlie Burroughs, Mm -hmm. both of whom I knew. Charlie Burroughs 
went over to the Soviet Union to fight with the Red Army during World War II. There were a lot of Afro-Americans that went to the Soviet Union, you know what I'm saying? To live and to start, a new, and there was one guy named Times and his daughter or one of his daughters became famous in the United States because she was a scholar of Pan-Africanism. Mm -hmm. uh, Oh, her father's name was Slava Times. No, her brother was named Slava Times. Mm. Ain't that deep, Slava Times? <laughs> Slava. Hey, could you imagine what you could do with that in any ghetto? <laughs> Slava Times. <laughs> Come here, Slava. <laughs> but uh, you know, Slava means uh, glory or something in Russian. But uh, but anyway. And then his sister, what was his sister? But she was, you know, uh, another, you know, uh, William L. Patterson. Am I talking too much? No. William L. Patterson, the great, you know, the guy that, along mm -hmm. with Paul Robeson, took the petition to the United Nations, charging the U.S. government with uh, a genocide against the African-American people. Well, when he, see, a lot of Blacks went over to the Soviet Union to study Marxism-Leninism, at the Lenin School in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And they stayed for years. And of course, they go over there staying for years, you know, uh, human attraction being what it is, you know, somebody gonna fall in love and get married. And he did. And so William L. Patterson had, to my knowledge, a daughter, a daughter in the Soviet Union. And I remember she came over here to live. And she lived with Patterson. And I met her. I forget her name now, you know, but you could tell she was his daughter, but just light skinned. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. But I, but Paul wrote uh Eslanda Good Robeson, Paul Robeson's wife. Thank you. Her brother. Okay, Paul Robeson and his wife said with the rise of fascism, we have to now devote our lives to fighting fascism. Mm. So what you gonna do with your son, Paulie? Uh, so they worked out something where Paul Robeson's wife's mother said, I will take Paulie to the Soviet Union and raise him here during the war or however long. Paul Robeson's son was educated and became an engineer in the Soviet Union. Eslanda Good Robeson's brother went over there too and fought in the Red Army. You see what I'm saying? So this thing of a more hopeful democratic future yes. Yes. is what they saw. And I make all of these things to say, we call the Soviet Union a multinational state. You could also call it in many ways a multi-civilizational state. Mm -hmm. Many civilizations, because it's not just Ukraine is a nation, Moldova is a nation, Belarus is a nation, Russia is a but that's that's why they refer to the to Russia as a Eurasian state. 
It's a very interesting thing. I, well, we can come back to that. But a big part of the Soviet Union is, is European. But the hugest part geographically is Asian. Those people, if they ran into each other on the street, they would not know each other. Because many Uzbeks, many Kazakhs, many Tajiks, they didn't speak Russian and still speak a kind of broke, bro, quote, broken Russian. Their mother tongue is Uzbek, Tajik, whatever. The destruction of the Soviet Union, which was the result, and I say this again and again and again, was not natural or inevitable. It is the result of betrayal some would say bad decisions of elites in the Soviet Union who were more connected to West to Western elites and Western intelligence services. And I put at the top of the list, Mikhail Gorbachev, a traitor, a traitor, he was not a Democrat. They destroyed the Soviet Union. There was no rational, re even if you wanted to reform the Soviet Union. Deng Xiaoping introduced severe reforms in China. But one thing Deng Xiaoping was committed, you're not going to destroy the People's Republic of China, the Chinese state. Why to reform the Soviet Union did you have to destroy it? And then you get the narrative in the West, you probably heard it. Well, it could not be reformed. It had to be destroyed. And as, as you can tell, I'm still agitated and angered by that because it was a great achievement. Mm -hmm. But to destroy, and this is where the stakes were higher with the Soviet Union than with China. In other words, Reforms in China and the ultimate economic development of China took place under conditions of a rapprochement, a detente, a pullback in hostilities between the United States and China. The political international conditions were favorable. North Korea has achieved what it has achieved under conditions of the most severe hostility, which makes the achievement even greater. There was no detente. Detente is agreement, uh, an end to hostilities. North Korea has never had that luxury. The Soviet Union never had that luxury. So the elites of Russia, of the Communist Party, enough of them agreed with the West. Separate Russia from the rest of the Soviet Union. Let the European republics, nations, Ukraine, Russia, uh, uh, Moldova, go towards Europe. 
and let the Asians do the best they can in the meantime. You see what I'm saying? It was a racist move to the core. And that's why Yeltsin, they came out after, you know, Yeltsin was a cold-blooded alcoholic. He was incapable of this. In fact, when he came here to visit, I think it was Bill Clinton, he came and uh, got drunk one night and um, uh, the Secret Service found him running down the street butt naked. Yeah. This is the cat, cat was, he was, he was, the guy was just a, a piece of garbage. I mean, can you imagine that? A big, fat, out of shape. And he's the head of state running, running down outside the White House butt naked. But anyway, it's a grotesque thought, but it happened. So, <laughs> you know, history is also comedic. <laughs> so, excuse me. I'm well, the Russia house is only six blocks away. What house? The Russia house. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he, maybe he's running between the Russia. <laughs> or maybe he was doing his uh, morning Drive. exercise. Morning <laughs> Not yeah, but anyway, they just decided and said, the Soviet Union is done. Mm. And I'm, I'm certain there were people in certain republics that only got the word yeah. a couple days right. late. It's done. I mean, what? Yeah. But to just, here's, the, here's what I'm saying. The, the stakes were higher. First of all, the Soviet Union was the principal adversary of the West. Mm. The second thing was the world communist movement was tied to the Soviet Union. You destroy the Soviet Union, you destroy the world communist movement. That's why the stakes were so high. Putin is right. The greatest catastrophe of the 20th century was the destruction of the Soviet Union. This is very important for him to say because he is saying that it was a greater tragedy than the loss of 27 million people mm. in World War II. And it was. You could reclaim the country, you could rebuild the country, you could educate the children of those who'd been killed, you could do a lot of things if, you, if the state remained. You destroy the state. You throw millions and millions of people into a state of social and existential uh, crisis. Unimaginable. In other words, overnight, the life expectancy of Russian, let's say, just say Russian men, went from something like 60-something down to 50. It was that terrible. And ultimately, Putin comes to power. He is still a Europhile. In other words, he loves Europe. He loved to speak German. He loved to show himself off as more European and hence more civilized. You know, and he thought he could, I, I put it this way, that he could play the West. And I'm going to show you all that I'm a, a reliable partner. If you remember, if you ever heard Putin speak, our Western partners. Now, your Western partners are arming the people 
that you're going to war with, y'all ain't partners no more. It's just like if Serafina, what she might do, came to me and put a knife to my throat. Oh, and I said, my partner, Serafina, got a knife to my throat, but I'm trying to talk her out of cutting my throat. You know what I'm saying? You ain't my partner no more. You try to kill me. It was only after what is now almost a year of the war in Ukraine that Putin and his inner circle, as they call themselves, have had to come to the harsh reality. One, even if you think you're European, the Europeans don't see you that way. Mm. It's just like if I walk down the street and I say to myself, I'm a white man. Yeah. And everybody look at me, hey brother, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a white. <laughs> You know, it's delusional. Oh, I, I mean, excuse me. You know, I got to analogize this. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm. Uh, I'm trying to be. Uh, um, you know, I talk. You know, I talk like a white man. You know, I. You know, you know, white talk. Or I, I dress like a white man and all that. So I must be white. And then. And I walk out the street and the police whoop my behind <laughs> or stop my car. You're not white, money. Yeah. And I'm going to whoop your behind like a black, like I whoop a black man's behind. A rude awakening. That's what happened to Putin. Then people told me, you ain't white. And now you done stepped over the bounds. And what is, he has to go back to the Soviet vision. If it is your Asian, if it is a, your Asian landmass, Asia is not just a derivative and geographic identity. It is a central part of the whole Asia. And now, of course, in these political circumstances, with the rise of Asia, Russia is like Du Bois conceived it, an Asian nation with Europeans in it. You see what I'm saying? Mm. I just want to end on this. Foreign policy. The policy that informed the formation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. It is an anti-colonial national freedom ideology. That's what made it possible. The interesting and profound thing is that that is the very principle that guided the Soviet Union's relationships with Africa in particular. The same principle of anti-colonialism that led to the formation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic guided Soviet foreign policy with regard to the anti-colonial struggles, especially in Africa. They fought for it in the UN Security Council and in the General Assembly 
and in the UN Charter, the right of nations to self-determination. Colonialism is illegal and unjust. And it was guided by that. But with the breakup of the Soviet Union and then with Putin trying to be cute, you know, I'm Europe, I speak German to Angela I'm, I'm Merkel. My German is, is very good. You know, all that old performance. Some people don't give a fuck about that. Now, a couple of months ago, the foreign minister of Russia tours several African countries. You know, as they say in the street, now you're back to black. The white man rejected you. Now you're back to Africa. Mm. Is my language too harsh? Mm. Sometimes I'm a little street. Ah. <laughs> Why are you back? Okay. That's you you back to life. Africa, mm-hmm. which was the center of Soviet anti-colonial mm. policy. Mm. Now it's Africa. The Europeans have done everything they can to isolate Russia in this time of war. The Africans have refused to go along with this policy. Mm-hmm. Lavrov, in his speeches, talked about Russia as supporting the anti-neocolonial mm-hmm ambitions and strivings of the African nation. (laughs) So whereas before you were siding with the European countries, now the European countries have kicked your buns to the curb. When I say you're behind (laughs) to the curb. And now you're back to Africa. You you understand what I'm saying? Now I'll end on this. Putin by Putin, I mean his circle, must recognize we lost so much with the destruction of the Soviet Union. Now, we have to rethink and reappreciate this great achievement of the Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. And if Russia is to survive this Western onslaught. It will only occur, first of all, you know, first of all, you know, the Ukrainians has always been a problem, period. But the Uzbeks have not, the Kazakhs have not, the Tajiks have not. These Asian people aligned in many ways, culture, language, and other things with China and Central Asia will will save Russia from the... So I I just wanted to bring... This is very important, not just as a historical past, but what is the future of Russia and how, if Russia is to develop, what must be done and must it do something, if not exactly the same, something similar to what Lenin and the Bolsheviks did in 1922?
Was we have a YouTube comment from Paul So. I think he's mm -hmm. um, his name's Paul So S O. Mm -hmm. I think he is on Midwestern Marks okay. live streams. But he says, "I'm a Marxist Leninist, but I have a Russian American friend who expressed his grievance to me that his Protestant Adventist family was persecuted by the Soviet Union." Well, everybody over here has been persecuted by the Soviet Union. <laughs> Every Russian over here, every Ukrainian, mm. they were persecuted by the Soviet. But it's very interesting. I say this to his friend. Um, were you persecuted by the Nazis? Mm. Mm. Um, uh, do you under do you trace persecution back to the czars mm. and the uh, you know the, in in czars Russia they had something analogous to the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. And they would come out, ride on horses, come into your village and, you know, rob, steal and kill, kill, mm -hmm. you know, just cause they didn't like you and you was a different ethnic or religious group. Yeah, no, uh, the Soviet Union provided the greatest opportunity for freedom and development mm -hmm. in the space that was once ruled by the czars. Mm -hmm. And everything has to be kept in perspective. Mm -hmm. yes. And don't come to the, to the discussion uh, uh, 50 years late. You don't even understand what the issues were right. that produced the Soviet Union. That's one of the things, you know, uh, you, you know, this, the so-called smart Americans, well, I have my degree from John Hopkins in international law specializing on the Soviet Union. I mean, <laughs> Well, anyway, you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. These smart people don't know they're behind from a hole in the ground. And they are trained in one thing and one thing alone, to distort history. Mm -hmm. Most academics, and I mean the overwhelming majority, are comfortable in a society like this with vast inequalities and oppressions, but yet they always are experts on everybody else. We want to free the women of Afghanistan. What about the women of Southwest Philadelphia? Yeah. You understand? Yeah. What about, you know, what about the girls who are not, you know, anyway, yeah. you know, oh, we're yeah. so concerned about the girls of, no, you ain't concerned about nobody but the regime. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, no, I, I mean, that's, that's fakery, that's bad faith, that's moral backwardness and dishonesty. Mm -hmm. I think we have to call it what it is. Sadly, we might have to do that at the career conference. <laughs> mm -hmm. Any other? Yep. Um, so we have a comment from Donna Barr on uh, Ukraine. Specifically, yeah. he references this brief by the, I think, I forget where this is from. Oh, the State Department. Um, mm -hmm. And specifically, he says, meanwhile, this is what the CIA is still up to and what they did and what you, what the Ukraine war is a product of. And essentially, this brief is titled Decolonizing Russia. And this is the U.S. saying <laughs> that. Decolonizing Russia. Yeah, that, which is like the opposite of the narrative that you're telling us. Um, and that the U.S. has a role to play in fighting against Russia and its colonization efforts. Um, and then Don also 
uh, post some links on the Buriat people that you have. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the Buriat tribe. They're very interesting. I'll never forget it. that woman. This young woman was so proud to say I'm Mongolian of the Buriat tribe. I remember to this day. It's so so fascinating. But Kathy, she looked like you. <laughs> when I, matter of fact, when I first met you, that woman's face came to mind. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, any other questions? Paul said thank you. Hmm? Thank you for your answer. Who said Paul also? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think, you know, what is so fascinating about the free school and about you all is, and I, I think this, this, this might be our strong hand, the young generation, the second, mm -hmm. even first generations of people who came here as immigrants from various countries right. of East Asia. Uh, and it, all experiences are different because, you know, the Vietnamese and Cambodians are, are different than the Koreans or the Chinese in the immigrant experience. And they react, they have a different response to American society. Just like, you know, if I might just say this, I find one thing so fascinating. All of these um, Southeast Asians and Northeast Asians joining the nation of Islam. Yeah. How is that to be explained? And I've asked members of the nation of Islam, did you think this would happen? I thought they were going to say, yeah, well, you know, the honorable Elijah Muhammad, when he said we Asiatic black people, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they told me to my face, no, not in a hundred years could we have imagined Asians joining the nation of Islam. And these are younger Asians. And what is it about the black experience that is now attracting, and in, in fact, educate. Now, of course, you know, there's a lot of, you know, when you go to the West Coast, you got a lot of Asians that are in the thug life. Mm -hmm. Just keep it real now. Yeah. Everybody ain't going to elite universities. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in China, and I, I was saying this to Emily, who was, you know, the perfect order. But in China, there's a long history of thugs and gangs. I mean, China got hey, some serious <laughs> gangs. And I mean, you know, and I'm not hating, you know, I'm just appreciating. But <laughs> so, but I mean, really, this movement of Asians towards the Black struggle in many ways, it could be the tipping point in the processes of the formation of a new people. Because believe me, Black people will see ourselves differently, and I mean this, as Asians. So let us say joining the nation of Islam, you know, I mean, you, you want to be an anti-Semite? Asian people want to be called anti-Semitic? Join the nation of Islam. Wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, 
and now Asian joining the nation. And we got in the free school. Mm-hmm. And everybody's trying to, but for black folk. Now I said this to Brandon and Chanda. You, you don't know how people like us who have been isolated, immigrant groups come to the country and act like we don't even exist. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Well, that's the safe thing. You have to do it that way. You can't come in this country and, and before you even get the language down, you down with the nation of Islam. No, you can't do it that way. That's not practical. But now, this affirmation of Black people is very affirming for Black people. Yeah. I mean, really, it is very, because you're talking about an oppressed group, not just the physical oppression, but the psychological oppression. And then the previous time, and I would go to the, be at the University of Pennsylvania library. And one of the things that always I was concerned, why are all the Asian girls with white guys? And the not so good looking white guys. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying, I would often, Stan, ain't that the truth? I know you might, so what? This is a really good looking, I don't know Chinese from Korean at that time. <laughs> But Asian girl, I'm, I'm not. I'm not hating that. But why all of y'all with white men? You know, I'm saying. I know how. I mean, I'm feeling a certain way. But I'm saying, well, how do Chinese men feel? And then I start. I started noticing a lot of Chinese dudes going in the gym lifting weights. <laughs> I saw that happen. No, y'all ain't gonna take all our women. Shit, we, we taking our women back. Fuck that. And I never saw a white woman with a Chinese guy. You know what I'm saying? You, we ain't never seen it. There's more in Boston. Oh, okay. See, I missed out on that because I'm not in Boston. But you never no, saw. But now. The Chinese man with the rise of China is more sexually attractive. You see what I'm saying? They fucking everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But it's but it's all good because this is what we need to. This new people. This new people, and I, I should tell you, the nation of Islam in the second resurrection is different than it was in the first resurrection. You know what I'm saying? far more developed, far more sophisticated, far more educated, you know, from, from the places that we've been. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that. It's so, because the identification with the black struggle frees the Asian from the psychological oppression especially for Koreans. Everybody's a Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. How did all the Koreans end up in the Presbyterian? Now, but you go to South Korea, they singing gospel over there. What? Hardcore gospel in Korean. I mean, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, for, but it hasn't reached over here yet. Mm-hmm. Everybody's been a little more sedate, a little more but don't let that gospel music 
get into the Korean Presbyterian Church. <laughs> when the, they be playing tambourines and organs and shit. So wow, wow. But that's that new synthesis. Mm -hmm. And it's a, you know, okay, God, let me shut my back now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can read some comments. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Alice. <laughs> uh, so Don adds, um, they, as in, I think the state, held a seminar this June with ethnic minorities in Russia. They are trying to incite uh, secession from Russian from the Russian Federation. Mm -hmm. um, and then Jahan says, thank you, Doc, for that excellent overview of the USSR. It remains a monumental experiment in human democracy, which the Western, which the Western ruling class wishes to bury under mountains of lies. Mm -hmm. There is an interesting speech by Gennady Andreyevich Zuganov. Yeah, the head of the, so, of the Russian Communist Party. General Secretary of the Communist Party of Russia, commemorating 100 years of the U.S. He also spoke. Do we end? Did something happen to the live stream? I think so. Yeah, oh. solid. Blank. Okay, never mind. Hey, we're back. He also spoke in support of the Russian military efforts as an existential war against imperialism, Absolutely. and also praised the Chinese model, advising Russia's current ruling party to learn from the Soviet experience as well as the Chi the current Chinese model. I wanted to ask for your people's thoughts on that speech, um, but. Is that the same one we watched this morning, Emily? I think it might be. Yeah. But yeah. specifically in terms of the Chinese piece, I think in that speech he was saying it as continuing the legacy of the Soviet Union. Um, and then yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pastor Keith says, thanks, Doc, for the analysis of our Asian and Black alliances. It's a new day in America. <laughs> mm. um, Amadi says, oh, our Amadi, Black yeah, struggle. Our black struggle in U.S. inspires grassroots people world, uh, grassroots people worldwide. Jahan adds the point about the Soviets, the point about the Soviets as units of the working class in the Russian Revolution is very interesting. Studying the civil rights movement and more recently its its extension into Chicago through SCLC's Chicago Freedmen Movement. Freedom Movement, Operation Breadbasket, and then Operation Push. Mm -hmm. And I'm again impressed by the role of the Black church as a unit of working class struggle, coordinating most aspects of the struggle. Mm -hmm. In some cases in Chicago churches, oh, in some cases in Chicago, churches had complete overlap with militant la labor leadership, the working class pastors serving as labor leaders and vice versa. Right. Mm. I was wondering if, in this revolutionary process, the church may emerge as a version of the classical Soviet, especially with the decline wow. of labor unions and other working class organizations. Who's saying that again? Jahan. Uh, no, Jahan. Jahan. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. See, can I just say something about that? Um, you know, uh, Meghna and Jahan. I don't know if we're gonna ever get them back to Philadelphia now that they've been in Chicago, <laughs> but y'all better come back here. <laughs> I'll bind you in the name of Jesus. But no, anyway, we're talking about man, me and Serge. Uh, 
this is very important because one, one of the misunderstandings of the period of industrial labor organizing of the 1930s, which was very successful, was the relationships between labor organizers and the black church. It is not, the black church has never been absent in the struggle for democracy and justice, mm. no matter where it is. Never been absent. Mm. Um, you know, we, I mean, we just, you know, we in the free school, these experiences, you know, Stan, the reason we all talk the way we talk and like we are all talking off the same script is because we've had similar experiences. Mm -hmm. We go to Moss 25 in Newark, New Jersey, and are welcome with open arms. Mm. We go to mosque number 12, we go to the churches and the same thing. And, and, and Johan is right, something new. Well, it makes us new. It, you know, it, it's, it's I, well, I, I won't say it. What happens when these experiences, these progressive and fruitful and life-affirming experiences happen to mm -hmm. people. People change, people grow, people reflect. You know, uh, a lot of the young people here graduated from Cornell University. You wouldn't know how humble they are. And we do have some physicists. They just happen to be in India right now. They'd be back. So you'd be able to meet them. And uh, actually, you talked about AI. <laughs> so, but um, without the free school, forgive me if I'm wrong in this. You all would be living lives of quiet desperation. Mm -hmm. What would you be? What would yeah. your identity be? Mm -hmm. What would you think about? What would you write about? I'm not, are you talking about where you, where you went to business school at? I went to Georgetown. Okay. And then also, are you, have you, have you, did you apply to Wharton? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> I'm telling that one down there. Yeah. But what do you do? without life-affirming human relationships. And this is what we've, we've experienced. And I think what we're seeing, the way we see it, and the way Jahan and Meghna out there in Chicago, the way they see things, is based upon the theory and the things we read, but our experiences. Mm. You know, and I know Anna and 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 Nuri and, and Jeremiah. Like like Anna said, the central focus of that of this is not even Korea. It's the United States. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. How can you study the struggle for peace and and unity on the Korean Peninsula in order to bring about change in the United States? Mm -hmm. This that was a, that was a very profound, profound yes, mm. yes, and a dig and honor. Make sure y'all get that in the mission statement, because if 
Because see, you know, in doing this, we already know Nation of Islam is going to be the church, the Overcome is going to be the church. We know black folk are coming. You know what I'm saying? The question is, will Koreans of the diaspora join us in this great effort to make a new people, to make the Korean diaspora a new people? You know, all the baggage that you carry, sometimes you got to let some of it go if you're gonna grow. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, that's, that's a, yeah, this is, this is so important. And what John, the church, I don't think there is, and this, you know, Du Bois talks about this in the Philadelphia Negro and in Souls of Black Folk. Um, what the black church shows in terms of the capacity of black folk to unite and struggle. This is, this is what Sarah and I, that's why we're always listening to this music. What does this show us? What, you know, um, can a people who are severely oppressed in a country that they played such a decisive role in developing its material life, but also in developing its democracy. Oh, by the way, that's what we want to get. And I think, see, you're not just talking about oppressed individuals, but you're talking about a people who through their struggle has made democracy even in its bourgeois form, a reality for far more people than black folk. This is so deep. Um, this is why the question, the question of democracy, and I think in, in your essay, the question of democracy is a central question. See, when Du Bois said the problem of the 20th century mm -hmm. is the problem of the color line, he was saying, because he writes this 35 years after the end of the Civil War, I guess about 20 years after the, the ending of Reconstruction. So what is he talking about? The problem. The problem that he is talking about is the problem of democracy. The problem of the 20th century to be read, the problem of democracy is the problem of racial oppression. Turn it on the other side. Hence, Martin Luther King Remember he made the statement, I keep, don't be confined to the colony of time, but strive for the empire of eternity. We got, I mean, these people ain't just blowing off hot air. You know, the arc of the moral universe bends to justice. What is he saying? These words inspire and inspire to the extent that they can be heard. Mm -hmm. 
What does it mean? I'm 25 years old. I hear the arc of the moral universe is long, but there's justice at the end of this. The problem for democracy is the problem of race and racial oppression. Mm -hmm. Don't be confined to the limits of time. Think in terms of, an, of the empire of eternity. You know, like Du Bois's The Immortal Child. The child becomes immortal because he is raised or she is raised up with values that even if they don't survive the Holocaust of this society, what they represented is the immortality. And that's what Nuri is studying in, 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 in the archives of pedagogy of North Korea. You see what I'm saying? If they had been confined to the colony of time, they could not foresee the possibility that they're now living. It's the, the empire of eternity. Some things are timeless. And this fight for democracy, this is why the African-American people, you just cannot, I mean, even sometimes I lose hope. Can mm. we do it again? What is our capacity? You know, we've been hit hard by this ruling cliff. I mean, we've been hit so hard since the civil rights movement. Just hit, I mean, the, the pop culture, which is not organic to us. You know, and all of that, then the white establishment chooses black leaders. The academic academy university are filled with uh, black bootlickers and opportunists. You can't get a truthful word. <laughs> AJ, I know you go to class, take a course in, in black studies, and they don't talk about black people in the United States. So I could talk about black people in Africa that I don't know nothing about, but what about these ones over here that the black people in Africa is trying to understand? You understand what I'm saying? I could tell you about Martinique, but what about Gary, Indiana? Yeah. Where that hardcore struggle been waged? You, you dig what I'm saying? So, when is the truth of America and this struggle going to be an area of serious research in so-called, quote, Africana studies? Yeah, we all are African people. Everybody's an African person because humanity began in Africa. Okay, granted. But what the hell about this struggle? this 400 year historic cycle, which might be reaching its conclusion. We gotta get that in there. See, the thing is, what Emily is writing about is democracy, new theoretical synthesis. It's the very thing that Du Bois was indicating. The problem for democracy is the problem of racial inequality. A lot of people say, no, it's the problem of, uh, of class inequality. That's why the question of democracy is central. A socialist remaking of the society 
cannot occur unless there's a democratic remaking of the American people. The, and that, that don't mean everybody. We ain't talking about uh, uh, 300 million people. We're all for the remaking of ourselves. No, ain't nobody playing. No, We're not in Disneyland, I'll put it that way, and don't want to go there. The question is, and this is the expansive definition of democracy. New democracy means expanded democracy. Expansive as a category of thinking. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. An expansive um, what was the phrase that Derek used again? Uh, unusual dynamics. An un unusual dynamic. Unusual di dynamics. This, I think that could also apply the triggering of unusual dynamics. Yeah, that, I, but that's, that's, you know, so democracy is a, is a condition for socialism mm. to even be fought for because democracy is the basis of the unity of the people. Black people are not going to unite in a principled way with anybody that does not recognize their rights. They will withhold their participation. You have to recognize our oppression, past, currently, but to recognize that is to acknowledge that that the choice is made for new democracy, a restart of democracy, a complete recognition of the single people's contribution to the democracy of this nation and of all of its people. It's a very existential, very emotional thing. Country can't exist, it'll fall apart. Mm -hmm. um, just some YouTube comments. Mm -hmm. Tamika Scott says this conversation Tamika. is very. Oh, Tamika Scott says this conversation is very informative. We need this. Thank you. Um, oh, this is your friend. That's my aunt. Oh. <laughs> Your whole family is in the house. <laughs> she came to the 10th anniversary with my cousins. Aww. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah, your cousins are cute. Yeah, no. Oh, I did, I did. I showed you all my cousins and they were in line getting food. Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And then Jahan says, Chicago is an amazing place with a tremendous history, but it's missing one big thing that Philly has, the free school. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Oh. I can see that. I can see it's that. I can see that. Yeah. I, it's, yeah. Okay, it's 1.45. Do you want to read some a paragraph from the general strike? Should we or should or should you say something to introduce? Or or Sarah, you want to say something to introduce this chapter? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm actually already gonna read it. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, because I don't think we could yeah. really get into it unless let, let's just see. Maybe. Um, well, first of all, for everyone to know, we've jumped from chapter one, the black okay. worker, to the general strike. Yeah. Um, what page do you want? In this book, it's page fifty-five. Well, we could just read the epigraph at the beginning. Uh, how and and he where he says what the chapter will be about. Does everybody see that? Yeah, the top. You want to read it, uh, Sade? Yeah, I can read it. You want me to read this part? Yeah, just okay. mm -hmm. how the Civil War meant emancipation and how the Black worker won the war by a general strike, which transferred his labor from the Confederate planter to the Northern invader in whose army lines workers began to be organized as a new labor force. Mm. Yes. This, okay. You know, when we talk, this, anyone want to say anything about it? Want to say anything, sir? Um, I guess this is after, or like, this is after reading the Black Worker chapter. Mm -hmm. And when we're discussing like the Black proletariat, like what is the proletariat? What is the working class? Those questions that we were hashing out, like what did it mean uh, for slavery to demean all labor? Um, mm -hmm. And that end of the quote, the emancipation of all labor is emancipation of all work. I forget exactly. Who are yellow, brown, and black? Yeah, the emancipation of black labor. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, no. I mean, just like, because, you know, what he said, the in whose army lines workers began to be organized as a new labor force, it's re centralizing the fact um, of what Du Bois's thesis is, mm -hmm. which is that, yes, the black mm -hmm. proletariat. Is a proletariat, um, and and it's central to the making of the America. And and this is so deep. See the second part of it, and how the black worker won the war. Right, right, right. By yeah, see, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, see, Nuri at the conference on on black reconstruction. I hope she does a critique of of Foner. Because see what see the question we're back to the question of democracy, you know, and uh, what yeah, how they won the war by a general strike, not a wildcat strike. Mm -hmm. A wildcat, you see the difference of a general strike and a wild. Well, generally the difference. A wildcat strike. Let's say we work at uh, McDonald's. I just use McDonald's. Right. And the boss or the manager ain't treating us right. Mm -hmm. And we get on our cell phones and then we decide next thing. We ain't, well, we're going to come into work, but then we're going to walk out. Mm -hmm. That's a wildcat. Mm -hmm. A general strike is a more prolonged, more highly organized, and generally consists of a larger number of workers. Right. What Du Bois is saying here is not a wildcat. He's talking about 
a prolonged strategic move which demonstrates, and this is where every discussion, Du Bois says, the black worker ended slavery and in the process creates a new labor force, mm -hmm. a new worker, a new category yeah. from enslaved to a to black proletariat. Now right. we, we've often said that the enslaved proletariat, mm. you see what I'm saying? Yeah. A transition. I, I can see that too. But it comes about as a result of their action. Right, right. Which then says, and Du Bois says this somewhere, I don't remember, that what had been talked about by European socialists and radicals, but never realized happened here. Which, see, Emily, if what Du Bois is saying is right, then we are right. Because if this capacity existed, you know, does it still exist? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Does it still exist? Now, of course, we take the optimistic side of the picture. It exists. It still exists. Yeah. Yes. You know, and we're studying and looking and listening for signs of evidence mm -hmm. of it still existing. Right. Mm -hmm. That a people who freed themselves from slavery can free themselves from this yeah. and free and people who fit a class of people who freed the nation mm. from the mm -hmm. slave system mm -hmm. can free the nation mm -hmm. from this rule of this ruthless authoritarian neoliberal class. This is what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Think of, I mean, oh. go, go, go ahead, Shade. I'm talking no, to No, I'm, I'm just digesting it because when you're saying that, I'm thinking back to the comment you made before of people misinterpreting that it is just a matter of classism being the battle of democracy, where Du Bois is very clear on like stating like how the color line along with classism, which the color line gave race to classism and how that together is actually the threat of democracy. Yeah. I'll be very honest with you. You know, once you've logically worked through the Du Bois in categories, mm -hmm. you know, and when I say I'm talking about categories of knowledge now, uh, in the same way, you know, you know, like we did, um, Hegel's Science of Logic, at least the introduction. Yeah. And what one of the things we're trying to do, the categories of knowledge, that's what philosophy does. Mm -hmm. yeah. So in that respect, we have to take Black Reconstruction, among other things, as a work of philosophy. Yeah. This, I mean, you just can't dismiss this book no. with uh, well, he got that wrong, and you know, yada yada yada. And now I'm going to fill in 
what he didn't, what he missed. I've had more uh, opportunities to do research, and I, 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 and, and yeah, he he said good, but now I'm going. You know, no, 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 dog. You don't even know what the book is doing. Right. And the problem is that most interpreters of Black Reconstruction have never really studied philosophy. And if you haven't, it's difficult to understand what is going on here. The Black worker in a philosophical construal is a category of knowledge. Excuse me for raising my voice. No, but that is exciting. Oh, 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 that's why we. That's why we can think and talk the way we do. Yeah. But then that goes back to your point too. Let me just like make this last point, quickly. Because we are thinking categorically. Right. In other words, you know, when we talk about Kant and his categories, Hegel. Well, it's really German philosophy to think mm-hmm. category. I mean, it really is. Wait, I'm sorry, let me just make this small point that whether we we know it or not, we think categorically. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And therefore, in in the process of knowing, it's not just to know facts, but to arrive at truths. Yeah. I'm sorry, but go ahead. Sorry, no, I was just pointing out, I was going to underscore what you said earlier that why people opt out of reading it is because of the way Du Bois's language is. Like he's a Renaissance man. And then you said these people don't have a background in philosophy, so they can't understand the text anyway. So that's like a natural cognitive function is, oh, I don't understand this, so I'm just going to dismiss it. Mm. And what they say they don't understand, they don't understand why he writes the way he does. Right. And actually, what he is doing. But go ahead, Stan. Mm-hmm. I was going to say very quickly that what I've learned after reading the voice over forty years <laughs> is that the more that I read, smarter the voice becomes. Uh, <laughs> well, that's true. Yes. Oh, that's yes. And you know, Stan, we have been in the free school reading this book for at least six or seven years, among other things, but. Every time we get into it, it's like we never read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's there. It's a, yes. and, and you know, like in the free school, we have like uh, groups of affiliate reading groups. Like, for instance, they got the Bandung reading group, the Azadi uh, reading group, uh, the Baldwin, and you know, and, and then we got the uh, Viet Lao, Kamai, and each of these groups, are, and now they're rereading. You know, the, the Van Dung group, they're rereading Black Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And they read, and they, you know, and, but every time we come here, it's like we ain't read nothing. I mean, not like we haven't read anything, That's but it's, it's, it's such a rich, it's rich. such a, yeah, and it, like you said, it becomes so exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry to, and we compare, by the way, we compare this text. To Hegel's science of logic and mm. Marx's Das Capital. Mm. I mean, really, it's just. Well, one of the questions <laughs> I was going to ask, <clears throat> um, if we had spent more time with the chapter, was yes, yes. Um, how does um, 
this chapter on the general strike um, relate to the second chapter in the souls of black folks? Dawn of freedom. Exactly. Yes. I go, well, well, why don't you give, mm. suggest something? <laughs> well, both of them, they deal with the history of reconstruction. Yes. Mm -hmm. But in this particular chapter, he deals with it um, in terms of economics more than he does in the souls of black folks, where you can see the um, impact that the black worker had on the war and how it turned. Can, can I just say something? This is, you know, um, you know, Du Bois, when he talks about souls of black folk, and I think he's not giving the work the credit that it's due, but he is saying uh, when he wrote Souls of Black Folk, he's 35, he's trying to find a more compromising, more, um, I use the word compromise, not sellout compromise, but palatable. Palatable. That's, that's actually the word I was trying to find. He says, uh, Dark Water is a rebel, more rebellious book. This is a study of revolution. The category, the categories through which he is working, the categories of knowledge are not as developed in Souls of Black Folk. Souls of Black Folk is more literary, therefore it's more allegorical, more metaphorical, more irony. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You don't, I don't get the allegory and uh, and metaphor in this text, although in terms of literary literature, it's beautifully done. Yeah, it is. It's beautifully, but it's not like souls where you get all of these metaphors, the color line. Well, don't go out in the street and try to find a color line. You might get killed on Broad Street. Where's the color line? Here comes uh, 18 wheeler Yeah, except the bus that just ran me down. <laughs> but, uh, or the concept of double consciousness, mm -hmm. the, con the concept of, um, of yeah. huh? Yeah. The veil. Mm. So he's working in a very heightened literary sense mm -hmm. here it is the weight of philosophy the weight of of um, of explanation it's it's just like in physics um you know physics the problems of physics are no longer problems of experiment so much as problems of philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Problems of philosophy, categories of knowledge. Mm -hmm. This is what I feel in this. It, it's unequaled in anything done in America. Unequal. Mm -hmm. Nothing comes close. You have to go to the classics of modern philosophy and social theory. Marx is revolutionizing political economy, Hegel revolutionizing philosophy. This is what to go. You got to put him in that mix, man. Mm -hmm. And you got to stop this bullshit. Well, he wrote a good book. And... No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. 
he changed the categories of knowledge, how we understand not America's past, but its revolutionary potentiality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, did you, Kayla, did you have your hand? Oh, no, no, I'm just oh, it's two o'clock. Well, it's two o'clock, and uh, my friend and colleague. <laughs> with the knife at your throat. <laughs> with the knife at my throat. She has to go to work. That's all she do is work. How many jobs you got now? Oh, we got two now. I'm just saying. The quietly minds want to know. But okay. But uh, <laughs> all right. This was this was this was good, y'all. Now tomorrow. Tomorrow is Madre's. I don't know how. Where is it? Hold on, man. Eleven o'clock. Um. It's in Lafayette Hill, right? Hmm? Is the church out in Lafayette Hill? It's in, in a Plymouth, Plymouth meeting. Yes. Yeah, so, now we can. There are buses that go right there. Maybe we can. If we, if we, if we, are you are you driving? Shall let's work something out. Okay, we'll talk after. Okay, we'll talk after. And uh, hey Caleb, I, I forgot you got wheels now, and you ain't. Hey look. I was going to say you got a pimp mobile. Oh, really? <laughs> no, but I'm not going to say that. You said, but you already said Oh, you did say Oh, you do? Okay. You acknowledge it. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Whoa. Okay, I'm ending the live stream. Huh? Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs>